Support for Boston Public Radio comes from the Simmons Leadership Conference, Wednesday, April 3rd, in person and online. A day of inspiration, skill building, and networking, featuring Trevor Noah, Gloria Steinem, and Padma Lakshmi. Inclusiveleadership.com. And Newberry Court, a full-service retirement community in Concord, Massachusetts. Newberry Court is committed to creating active, independent lifestyles for persons 62 and over. More at NewberryCourt.org. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, Attorney General Maura Healy joins us for Ask the AG. We'll get her thoughts on the abrupt end of the legislative session with a lot of undone business, a new abortion law that got Baker's signature late last week, and what she's doing to protect personal data at crisis pregnancy centers across the state. Have your own question for Maura Healy? Text her or call her. She'll be with us from 11 to noon. We'll reflect on the life and legacy of the great Celtics player and coach Bill Russell, who died over the weekend at age 88. First, we'll talk with ESPN's Howard Bryant, and then with you. All that ahead, Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GPH. Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GPH. Good morning, Jim. Hey there, Marjorie. How are you? I'm excellent. Thank now, you. I'm told by a very reliable source that in a matter of seconds, I repeat seconds, seconds. the Attorney General will burst through the door of our studio <laughs> and to participate and ask the Attorney General. So wow. if you want to call her or text her, it's the same number as I think you've learned, 877 877-301-8970. 877-301-8970. You get those texts. And now and you can line up on the phone so you don't complain at the end of the hour. I can never get through when the Attorney General or other elected officials are on. Call her now, 877-301-8970. And a mere 18 seconds late That's right. is the Attorney General of the Commonwealth. Maura Healy, it's great to see you. How hey, are you? Good, good to see you both. So, I would like to say she didn't morning. burst through the door. She walked in like a dignified public <laughs> official. I said you were going to burst through the door, and I was wrong, so I apologize. Uh, again, it's 877-301-8970 if you want to call or text the Attorney General, and you can tweet her at BOS Public Radio. You know, Attorney General, uh, you're younger than we are, but you are also a star basketball Doesn't player. Doesn't feel that way, but thank you. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, Bill Russell, great all time for the Boston Celtics. I thought as a basketball star yourself, you might have some, some thoughts. Well, um, I, you know, it's... He was a remarkable person, and it, it's it's a it's a poignant day, you know, with with his loss, with his with his passing. Um, he did so much on the court. He, of course, revolutionized the game. I mean, the game was was played with with defensive players being taught to to stay on their feet, and he changed the whole game by introducing the the, the shot blocking. He was an incredible warrior. I mean, all those years. Um, Leading the team um, in so many ways, so his his efforts on the court are absolutely incredible, and his efforts off the court are incredible. And you know, I've had a lot of conversations. There's a there's a great column this morning with um, by by Dan Shaughnessy. Yeah, his conversation with Bob Cousy, who I I love, and we we've, we've become good good friends over the years, and 
you know, there aren't many left. It's 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 Bob Cousy and Satch Sanders at this point from from that time just about. And the conversations that I've had with Bob Cousy and I've I've not had the opportunity to meet Bill Russell, um, but he he told me a lot about his experiences, Bill Russell's experiences in confronting racism in the early days, both here in Boston and then around the country as a player. Um, he really broke barriers, and you know this the. The stories of um, his growing up when his mom, you know, sent him out to, to fight. Well, there was a day when he was picked on and picked on by a group of kids. And his mom told him to go back out and fight them one by one. And I think he he got two of them and lost to three of them. But the point there, and I think what he took away from that, is that he had to be somebody who had to stand on his own feet and defend himself. And he never wavered in, in that conviction. And so it's a it's a sad day. It's a poignant day, and uh, certainly for all of us who love the game, um, it it is it's really something. But he was so much bigger than than the game of basketball. By the way, Howard Bryant is going to be with us at noon to talk about uh, Bill Russell. Who's written a lot about uh, Russell and these issues, and uh, we're also going to take your calls later in the show. And there's about a great Bill book Russell. too, The Last Pass, that mm-hmm. talks a lot about the dynamics between Bob Cousy and. Bill Russell and their relationship, their friendship. And How about that letter that Cousy wrote him saying, essentially, I should have done more yeah, to support you. Yeah. I mean, is that incredible? No, it's a beautiful story and a beautiful relationship they had. I mean, Bob Cousy in his own right, you know, he started the first players union of any major sports team. He sure did. He sure did. Way back in the day when, you know, wow. he's getting those players are getting, you know, $8,000 a year or whatever it was in meal money. And um, it's just it's a it's a good read because it's the story of the evolution of their relationship too. And um, Bob Cousy is a is a really gracious um, gracious man. Both both recipients of the Presidential Medal of of, of Freedom, um, both Bill Russell and, and Bob Cousy. So it's I'm glad you raised it because it's it it is about more than just mm-hmm. basketball, even for those of us who who love basketball. So talk about a horrible transition from Bill Russell to the legislature, but I'm going to have to do it because someone has to. So the legislature finishes its work at 5 a.m., Attorney General. They have time to do sports gambling in which people will lose money, no time to do rebates or tax breaks for people uh, who are financially suffering. Uh, A measure that would have provided free calls for people in prison died because they didn't have enough time to deal with a dangerousness proposal, dangerousness hearing proposal from the governor. What's your reaction to the fact that whatever died or didn't happen didn't happen because your fellow Democrats decided they had to go take a five-month vacation? Well, it's incredible. It's incredibly disappointing um, not to see the relief. And, you know, we know that there are people out there all around the state, and I am traveling all around the state talking to people who need the help, you know, who are facing real issues when it comes to the lack of affordability for so many things. And so we need to get, they needed to get something done. Um, they needed to to get a package done that was going to provide that kind of tax relief that was going to help with economic development. I also think not just about residents out there and families who are struggling. You think about our community health centers. You think about our hospitals. There were so many who were going to benefit from from this legislation. Now, I do hope that the governor and the legislature can work together in the coming days and get something done. There is still time. There is still a process for that to happen. And I really strongly urge that to happen for the sake of people across the state. Can you answer a question that Marjorie asked this morning? Because she knows I've been obsessed with years for this election year BS that they have to go home for five months. Why don't they just extend the session for two weeks or a month so they could deal with things that actually really matter to be, I don't, I don't, I couldn't answer the question. Can you? Well, uh, 
that you know that's that's the that's I guess better answered by them. I will say, and I'm I'm urging for them to to stay engaged, to stay involved, to take whatever measures that need to be taken in order to get this done, and that both the governor and the legislature continue to work on these things because the economic reality out there is that it's tough on so many residents, on so many of our families, and again, the economic development bill that was. I thought worked out um, that now seems to have gone by the boards, you know, is something that's going to provide a whole lot of important funding to a whole bunch of entities around the state. And we need to get this done. Can I ask you about two specific things? Uh, and then Marjorie may have a question about this. And then we'll start taking calls at 877-301-8970. Uh, the proposal that, that uh, Governor Baker attached to this free phone call for inmates was his relentless effort to expand the uh, breadth of cases where a dangerousness hearing, you know, pretrial detention without bail could happen to things like sexual abuse of a child, human trafficking, the latter of which I know you've done a lot of uh, work on. Did you support the governor's proposed expansion of uh, those criteria? Well, the the phone calls is something that I've long supported and and was proposed by my office to give relief to to families on those telephone bill on those telephone costs and charges. Um, in terms of the dangerousness, look, I am a supporter of survivors and victims out there. I chair the board that oversees the Massachusetts Office of Victim Assistance. I know how important it is to make sure that we're out there protecting victims and survivors, and so I support expanding to include rape and sexual assault. You know, these are instances where there have been serial rapists Mm -hmm. who have um, been released and then go out and and commit more rapes and sexual assaults. I hope, Jim, that the legislature works this out. I know that they continue to be uh, in discussion, but I hope that the legislature and and the governor can work out this legislation. I think it's important all around. Well, you know, the dangerousness bill, too, I think a lot of people don't even realize this is a state of affairs uh, right now, um, would have made other changes to criminal processes, improving victim notification before someone is released. I mean, that's a big area of concern to someone who's a victim of a a violent crime and making it easier for judge to hold someone if they violate bail, felony for cutting off a court-ordered GPS tracking device, things I think would have been very important for public safety. Well, I think that there's a balance, you know, there's obviously a balance there and, and there were concerns raised, as I understand it, about some of the due process and some of the the, the procedures that uh, that would flow from uh, revising this. That said, I think it's important that we do what we need to do to to protect victims and survivors and the public safety out there. So again, I, I'm hoping that they can work all of this out. Last question uh, relating to the legislative session. Uh, the Speaker of the House said on uh, when they discovered that a 1986 a law, this so-called this tax cap that uh, the voters embraced, which says that over a certain level of revenues collected, it's got to be returned to the taxpayers. only happened once before, I think in 1987. Uh, Speaker Mariano said, well, we may adjust it. We may repeal it. Uh, it, Currently, it's the law of the state. The governor says somewhere in the neighborhood of $3 billion of overage. Do you support the tax cap as it is and the return of those monies? Or do you think Mariano's on to something and maybe it should be revised or eliminated? Well, I think that if if the the law is there and it is triggered, then it should be uh, effective and followed through with, you know, if certified by the auditor. Do I think it's the best way to provide tax relief to people or relief to people? No, it isn't. I mean, so these things are not mutually exclusive either, Jim, right? And so, you know, that's why I was particularly interested in what I thought had been a negotiated tax package that was going to provide relief um, to, to people across the state, including changes to 
child tax credits, uh, the estate tax, um, relief to renters, um, some changes around deductions. There were a number of things uh, in that in that package. And so it is not an either or. It, it can be a, a both and. And again, you know, I think we everything should be on the table right now in terms of considering the economic realities and what we're going into this fall um, in terms of more concerns about about the lack of affordability for, for families right now in the state. That's the voice of Mara Healy, Attorney General, is with us till noon. Yes, you can reach her by phone or text at 877-301-8970. We'll fill in, fit in as many calls and texts as we can. Danielle from Marblehead, you are first on the uh, with the Attorney General. Hi. Hello. Hello. Um, so my question is regarding uh, COVID sick time. Recently, my husband, who is a special ed teacher, um, full-time, but also works in the summer, he had COVID and he was out for about a week and they um, refused to let him use his sick time uh, that he has. And, uh, but it's kind of a twofold question because yes, he was sick, but also um, the Department of Ed says that you can't, um, you can't go to school for uh, five days after you test positive. So he basically was forced to be out whether he was sick or not and could not use his sick time. So he, as a teacher, doesn't make a ton of money. And he lost all of that, a whole week's worth of pay. Um, and he had sick time that they would not let him use. So I'm kind of questioning, like, can they do this? Can the school do this? But also, is there any plan to bring back the, like, COVID um sick time, whatever happened earlier. I'm not really sure, but um, yeah, if we could shed some light on that. Danielle, thank you. Well, uh, thanks, Danielle, and uh, thanks to your husband. The, the role of teachers and educators out there is so, so important, and we know it's been a really hard couple years for our teachers and educators, uh, for our parents, and especially for our students. And I think like going forward, we need to, as a state, think about what we need to do to address some of the, the, the deficits there. I mean, kids have been really hurting um, the rate of anxiety, depression, um, even suicidality among kids. I mean, it's a real issue in our state. And we've talked a lot about mental health, and we need to make sure we, we get the support there. In terms of the actual sick time and, and so forth, um, I don't know the specifics of that. I'm happy to connect you with my, my Fair Labor Division in the office. But I think going forward, we need to, as a state, make continue to make decisions based on science, based on data, and also um, make the investments that we need to make in our schools, in our in our young people. And as I say, a lot of parents and a lot of students out, out there across the state have really been hurting and have suffered, and we need to do everything we can to support them. You know, you hung up, uh, or we hung up on you, I don't know which, but if you email us at bprwgbh.org, we will forward your contact information to the Attorney General's office. Will from Somerville has two questions. He says, Will priced out of Somerville. Two questions for the Attorney General. Why does she not support rent control? That's number one. And what are her thoughts on expanding remote work for state employees uh, to save the state money on renting office space? So a couple couple broad comments um, on that. First off, one of the reasons I'm so disappointed about the lack of action by the legislature and and the administration in terms of coming to a solution, a resolution on this, and again, I just urge them to continue to, to work on this, is because there's a lot of money out there that can be used for a lot of things, including housing. And that's one thing we've talked about, and I know from traveling all over the state, one of the top concerns out there 
um, is the cost of housing. It's a reason why companies are thinking about relocating. It is a concern that I hear expressed to me from people across income levels right now who can't afford rent, who can't afford a down payment. People who've been in their homes a long time can't afford to downsize (laughs) because they can't afford a new place. So, again, you know, we need to provide the kind of tax relief to to, to people out there. We also need to be using the money that we have right now and using the money coming in to make important investments in housing and transportation and infrastructure. So, you know, and I've said long my my, my housing policy is pretty detailed out there. um, But bottom line, it comes it comes basically to say we need more housing stock across a range of income levels. Um, and, you know, I will continue to support that. In terms of supporting renters, my office has long been on record. We have a number of programs meant to support renters, um, to um, to work with them, also to support landlords as well, who are really, you know, also struggling. And, you know, while rent stabilization is something that I'm generally su- I'm supportive of, provided it's done at the community level, um, it's also not a one-size-fits-all solution. I mean, we need to – the real way to deal with wealth disparity in our state and in our, in our, our country is the path to home ownership. That really is how you accumulate wealth, and that's why we need to also support programs that put more people on a path to home ownership. Um, and what was Will's other – The remote thing about – Oh, remote, remote thing? Yeah. I don't know. It sounds like, well, maybe a state employee may not be a state employee. Most state employees have been working um, the last uh, few years remotely. I know our office has had a, a combination of remote and then, and then hybrid. And I've always been about trying to support my workers and, and employees and meet them where, where they are. Can I be clear? Thank you, Will, for your uh, text. Uh, and again, you can text or call at 877-301-8970. The, 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 your uh, comment a second ago about rent stabilization is Mayor Wu and you call it or rent mm-hmm. control, whatever. You seem to be saying that you support what Wu and others, and correct me if I'm wrong, are proposing. They're not proposing a statewide implementation of rent control. They're proposing, I believe, that a the state allow local localities, I hate that word, your cities and towns, to authorize some form of rent control or rent stabilization that fits their community. You support that local option thing? Yeah, I support lifting the state ban on that. Oh, okay. Absolutely. You know, that's that's been my position. And, and you leave it to, to communities to sort it out and what's going to work within their communities. Because you also want to incent development, Jim, right? You need to be able to incent the production of, uh, of housing stock and you know, it, it, that's why it's a it's a more complex, you know, nuanced discussion than some would would want to paint it as. Uh, but again, my my point is, we need more housing stock. We need more investment in housing around this state, um, and we should be doing everything we can to achieve that. Yeah, there's a great piece in the Globe yesterday about the couple that had the house in one of the expensive suburbs. I think it was Wellesley or is it really they had four or five bedroom place, and they figured they were going to be able to downsize into a one or two bedroom. Nope, <laughs> I can't yeah, do in it. In Kansas, you can do <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, and that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. So it's not just what, you know, low-income housing or affordable housing. Um, it, it is housing just generally. And that's – you can imagine, you know, I've talked to how many employers at this point around around the state. And the number one barrier they have right now is, is the cost of housing. That determines whether or not their employees are going to stay here, especially given that people can work remotely and mm-hmm. maybe go relocate to another state, or whether they're going to stay here, right? And I want Massachusetts to be a state where people come, they stay, they thrive, they grow families and grow opportunity. But housing right now is a serious issue and a serious barrier to that. Chris in Cambridge, you're on Boston Public Radio with the Attorney General. Hey there, Chris. 
Hi there. Uh, thanks so much, Attorney General, for making time and being on the program. I was wondering, I have a kind of annoying question. Um, I recently got um, <laughs> uh, a letter from my bank that said uh, an account I thought I'd closed a while back was still open and it was about to be turned over to the state. And I said, OK, great. Let me go get that money. And it was uh, not too much money in the bank account. So I had, uh, you know, on digging further, I found out that I'd been charged fees for 43 months in a row of $10 a month. Not the end of the world, but it, it did make me think, um, you know, is there a rule about how long the bank should have to, to have notified me? Because I thought it was within two years that they should have told me, but it's been 43 months, which is, about, you know, a bunch longer. Um, and then it just made me think more generally, like, had they had any requirement at all to send me like an annual statement or something like that, I would have realized it's open and I would have realized I've been charged those fees for a long time. Do you have any thoughts on like whether that's something um, I could maybe get something back from or whether this uh, there's a more general benefit or rule that could be applied there? Well, Chris, first off, it's not an annoying question because these are the kinds of things that happen to people. And then you're like, well, is it worth my time and effort to go chase this? You know, because that in and of itself can be an aggravation. It's hard to get. Sometimes you call, you can't get a person on the line. It's all done online. So I am so glad you raised this because um, if it's happening to you, that usually means it's happening to other people. What you should do, Chris, is stay on the line and somebody from my office and our financial services division will talk with you and we'll see what we can do to help and to rectify this. Because if if anyone in, in the bank were doing things that they weren't supposed to be doing and overcharging where they, they shouldn't have been, then we'll take care of that and we'll work to get your money back. Hey, Chris, thank you for the call. Uh, Attorney General, I assume, I don't mean to be presumptuous, I assume you agree with me and Marjorie that you shouldn't have to jump into the Mystic River to be safe when you're riding the T in Boston. Uh, what, is there a, a role or are, what are you doing about the mess that is the 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 T as Attorney General? I'm not talking about as a candidate for governor, as Attorney General. Are yeah. you? Uh, well, I just I just got to say I am I'm absolutely... Um, I'm absolutely sick about what's happening there and what continues to happen, it seems, week after week. And people are absolutely right to be outraged about the situation and, and the state of play. And that needs to change. What am I doing as attorney general? My role is limited, Jim. I mean, a lot of this is subject to, as we, you've seen, federal oversight um, and the, the work of the board there at the MBTA and, and the administration. And so I continue to call for reform, call for changes, and they have to be really big changes. Like, Obviously, like we're what? dealing with what well, we're dealing with systemic failure uh, across a number of realms. And so, you know, you can look at everything from staffing to safety protocols to training to financing. Um, you can look at, at procurement. I mean, there's a range of things. And right now, it's subject to, to the FTA, and I'm going to continue to review the reports that come out. Um, the legislature, as you know, recently held oversight hearings mm -hmm. on this, and I continue to stay in touch with leadership on that. But I can tell you, this has got to change. And, you know, as for um, if I have an opportunity to do that in the future in a different role, it's going to be absolutely top priority. And, and, but, I, but I don't want to wait either. I don't want to wait because these things needed to happen yesterday. We're talking to Attorney General Maura Healy. Uh, Attorney General. And I'll uh, say that, too. You know, you know, I am so uh, I want to be so aggressive when it comes to addressing climate issues here in the state. But how are we going to incent people? to get out of their cars and take public transit if it's not reliable, running at times that work for their work schedule, and safe. And clearly we're failing. 
We're talking to Attorney General Maura Healy. The number is 877-301-8970. As you know, Attorney General Holtec, the company that's uh, taken apart the Pilgrim nuclear power plant down in Plymouth, uh, wants to discharge uh, 1 million gallons of treated radioactive wastewater into Cape Cod Bay. This does not sound like a good idea. I, I, I know you're on top of this. Um, what can be done here? It's a terrible idea, and we've told the company that. Um, it's an absolutely terrible idea. Not going to happen. Um, we've been uh, closely connected with folks there on the ground and will continue to be, but um, that's, uh, that's unacceptable. Can it be stopped, though? I mean, is this something that can be, can be stopped? Like the most, most recent he- um, hearing, they're saying, well, that the water's going to be treated and cleaned up before they well, dump They can say it. whatever they want. Yes, it can be stopped. It will be stopped. Okay. That's can we good. return? Before we take a break, two quick things. One, uh, we uh, sort of, I don't know if excoriate is too strong a word, were critical of the governor a year ago when we asked him about taking the tea. Was that where you used the term virtue signaler with you? I virtue can't remember. Signaling. He, yes, he did call it virtue signaling. I believe it was. Do you ride the tea? I don't. Not not often. I mean, I do now and again, but um, I'm not on it every day. Okay, uh, so but, you know, mind. I understand. I don't, you know, I don't think you have to ride the T to know what a serious issue it is. I mean, I have people. Remember, I, you know, I have a number of people who work in my office who commute yeah. through commuter rail, take the T every day, and um, you know, I see the problems. I see the problems out there with delays, with unreliability, with affordability too. By the way, you think about. You know, round trip, a commuter rail, and and the parking on top of that. Again, how are we going to get people out of their cars and taking public transit if it's not affordable, if it's not safe, if it's not on time? How are you going to take the take the T or the commuter rail if you can't be sure that you're going to be able to get to pick up at daycare or drop off and then get in for a meeting? So these are these are real real issues. These are the real issues, and it's interesting whether you're talking to uh, people who are. Uh, employees and residents, if you're talking to um, heads of companies. It's the same same complaint. Before we take a break, uh, you probably are aware that there are three candidates running for the Democratic nomination for your, I was going to say old job, your current job, soon to be your old job. Are you planning, on, and I have a debate with the three of them tonight at 7 o'clock on uh, obviously Channel 2 uh, and on the radio, I think it's simulcast. Are you endorsing in this race? I'm voting for Andrea Campbell. I'm voting for Andrea Campbell. I've, I've worked with her. Um, I also, you know, I guess I come to this as somebody, I've spent 15 years in that office. I was there seven or eight years, beginning about 2007, um, led major parts of that office, and then I've had the privilege of serving and leading that office as attorney general for the last almost eight years. And so I have a pretty good sense of what's required to lead that office. Um, and Andrea is somebody who brings, I think, the combination of judgment, skill, compassion, empathy, and really will center the work, as I've tried to do, on the people of the state. Do you generally... Uh, uh, and that's not to say anything negative at all about the other candidates. They're all terrific people and, and have great ideas and, uh, and, and backgrounds. But knowing what I know about the office and what it takes to lead it and the kind of office it is as the people's law firm, the people's lawyer, I think Andrea Campbell fits the bill. Do you generally endorse in contested Democratic primary races? Uh, sometimes. Yeah. Obviously, this one is a little. <laughs> this one's a little job, unique, yeah. as I say. You know, as somebody who's been in that office uh, for a long time and and led that office, I, I care a lot about the people there. I care a lot about the work uh, that's going on, the the way we've done it, the way we've approached things, um, and understand what it takes to run and and lead that kind of effective office. 
Andrea Campbell, people may recall, former city councilor. She ran for mayor, foster kid, and made herself, got herself into Princeton University. She has an impressive resume. And we should say Shannon Liss Reardon and Quentin Palfrey, the two candidates, all three of whom will join me tonight at 7 o'clock. Okay, all, we're, all, all great. We're talking to Attorney General Moore Healy. She's going to be with us till the top of the hour. If you want to uh, call her or text her, we'll try to get to as many of you as we can. 877 301 8970. 877 Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She is Mardriga. Much more importantly, we are speaking with the Attorney General Moore Healy, who's in our studio. You can give her a call or text. That, well, actually, you can't call her right now. The lines are full. You can text anytime. And one of our colleagues reads every single text. So uh, we'll get to as many as we can at 877-301-8970. You know, Mitch Renan Bedford's got a good uh, question. He says he What's went that? to Harbor Lights for a concert. Um, they're now cashless. Lots of places are cashless. Can you be cashless? Is that legal? He wants to know. For refuse to take cash. Yeah, I mean, there there are provided that certain accommodations are made that it, that it becomes easy to walk in with cash and then have that flip to a card and then you can use the card. But Mitch, you know, this is something that others have talked to me about. We went through this with Fenway. Um, Gillette did this well over a year ago. So more and more venues are moving to that. I want to continue to hear real time feedback about what's working and what isn't working. It would certainly do everything I can to make uh, it. Um, to make it <clears throat> a good experience for, for consumers out there. Desiree, you're in JP. You're on with the Attorney General, Maura Healy. Thank you so much for your call. Yeah, thank you, guys. Um, sure. Pardon my English first. Um, my question is about affordable housing, right? So I bought a house in 2008, thank you to the affordable program. But buying a house means creating wealth eventually or leaving a legacy. But this housing has so many rules. I will never be able to leave my house to either my children or my grandchild because there are so many rules. So it's like renting. I will never, I will never be able to leave that. How we can change those rules so we can build wealth too? Desiree, I'm so glad that you called to share your experience. And your experience is something that I've heard told by so many people to me and um you know, that's why I, a few moments ago I talked about the importance of, of home ownership as a path to building wealth. And, you know, in this country, <clears throat> how, do you get, how do you get wealthy? Somebody dies, you inherit money, you win the lottery, <laughs> or you, ha- you have a home and you're able to accumulate equity over time. I mean, that's, those, are, those, are, those are really the major ways when it, when it comes to, to, to this. And so, you know, Desiree's situation is not unfamiliar. It's why we need more housing stock. Um, I can't tell you, you know, the number of people who are priced out either as renters right now or are not able to purchase a home, come up with a down payment or are not able to sell their existing home to move into something else because the prices are just astronomical. And by the way, it's across the state. So, Desiree, that's why I say 
everything needs to be on the table. Um, but bottom line, we need to increase, grow our, the housing units across the state. Some of it's already underway, and I totally support particularly the transit-oriented housing where you've got housing uh, units right right up alongside transit because you can't really separate housing from, from transportation. But we need more housing units at a range of income levels all across the state. Because I will tell you, from here to Pittsfield to North Adams to, to Fitchburg to, to Dennis um, and, and beyond, housing is is the number one issue right now facing families in, in the state. The cost. Do you buy lottery tickets, by the way? Desiree, thank you very much for your call, and good luck. Do you buy lottery tickets? I, I don't. I mean, have I in the past a little bit here and there? Do you buy a Mega Millions a, ticket? For, no, no, I don't know. I, I Have I in the past? Sure, sure. I don't make a regular habit of it. It's a long line at the store. Your chances. <laughs> I you? bought one for Marjorie. I pretended I was going to split it with her if we won. Well, by wasn't the way. that what was that yeah. pot the other day? One point three billion. billion. Right. Taken by one person in Illinois. Yeah, um, in Illinois. Right. Yeah, I misspoke. Uh, Attorney General, I understand you're launching this education campaign for people that are really struggling with yeah. the electricity rates this summer. What's going on? Well, it's just that, Marjorie. I mean, electricity bills, you know, are, are way up. We expect heating bills to be up this winter. So we wanted to put out information to the public about the things that they could do to to deal with this. And so let me just tell folks, um, here's what you can do right now. One, call Mass Save. You can get an energy audit for free, and they can tell you about low-cost energy-saving measures. The other thing, if you're struggling right now, um, call your utility. They actually have payment plans that they will work out with you. So call your utility to make sure that you're on the right kind of payment plan and avoid being shut off. The other thing is get um, get you know get aware that there are people in this market who may be coming to your door, who may be literally be coming to your home trying to get you to switch to another utility company. And if you do that, you may find yourself not. You may find yourself signing up. It's kind of bait and switch. You need to be really careful because what we found in my office is investigated and actually prosecuted a lot of these entities is they end up baiting you into switching and then you end up paying more. Um, I'm going to also, you know, you can um, energy efficiency is big. Um, Look, right now, if you're at home, close the shades, close the blinds. It actually makes a difference. Um, Also, if you're running an air conditioner, even if you raise the temperature by a degree or two, that's actually going to end up saving you money. So these are some things. Also call, you know, uh, look at look at our office. We have all this up online. I'm certainly going to uh, be making sure that my office is actively involved in fighting any rate hikes um, by the utility companies over over the next several months as well. You know, before we leave this topic, we've talked a lot about heat pumps uh, on the show. Actually, neither Marjorie and I knew what a heat pump was until Bill McKibben said that, uh, uh, told us a couple of months ago, the solution to what's happening in Western Europe vis-a-vis Russia fuel is for the United States to, or President Biden, to do the Defense Production Act and ship tens of thousands of heat pumps to Europe. I'm told, I learned, I think I learned over the weekend, there are huge state rebates for heat pumps. Is that true? There are mini splits slash heat pumps. No, whatever absolutely, and this is part of what we need to do. You know, um, is to, is to introduce heat pumps to to more and more homes. And I certainly have a goal for that. I also recognize they're expensive, and not everyone can yeah. can do that. And so that's why being able to take advantage of of rebates is important. Um, and I'll continue to to support those efforts. So you know, again, it's it's a it's not a one size fits all. Um, but heat pumps are definitely the now and and the future. But there is an affordability issue there, and that's why we've got to help people out. A 
along the way to, as we incent people away from, from reliance on fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Catherine from Hopkinton, you're on with the Attorney General. Thanks for calling. Hi, I'm a registered dietitian and professional nutritionist, and um, I've run into a couple of uh, prospective clients that their insurance wouldn't allow them to do telehealth, and um, and I'm concerned uh, about the you know the the protection of healthcare professionals being able to continue with telehealth. Um, I'm afraid that that's going to go away, and I don't want it to. Um, because I have high-risk individuals, um, you know, that I'm close to, and and uh, I don't think it's right for patients who may have high-risk individuals in their family or who may be high-risk themselves to not have uh, health insurance that covers telehealth for something like like nutrition, which is just as good in telehealth as it is in person. I totally agree, Catherine, and there should be insurance coverage for the telehealth services that you provide. I think, you know, we've learned a lot of things during this COVID pandemic, and one of them is the importance of telehealth. And, you know, the studies show more people are showing up for telehealth appointments than they are for their in-office, in-person appointments because things come up, you know, a child's sick or you can't have, you don't have a ride or there are all sorts of things that actually keep people from making the, <clears throat> the in-person appointments. And so telehealth is, has been extremely effective. And I think especially for the, the work that you do, uh, being able to do that work, being able to be compensated for it um, is the only way we're going to make sure that these services are in place. So I am a huge proponent of that, Catherine, and you and other providers should have the benefit of, of reimbursement there and protection. Uh, Catherine, good luck. Speaking of health care. And by the way, I appreciate, you know, Catherine's a dietitian and dealing with with issues of nutrition. And as somebody, and we talked a lot about health care costs, just how, you know, just challenging they are and staggering uh, they are. One of the ways we lower our health care costs is by supporting primary care, by supporting preventative measures like excellent nutrition and diet. And so the work, I just want to give a nod to, to all of the, the folks out there like Catherine who are providing that work. It's that kind of work that we absolutely should make sure that we are um, making sure that people people get. Uh, staying on the healthcare front, or as I was about to say, or anti-healthcare front, could you explain to people what crisis pregnancy centers are if they don't know and what you're doing about them? Sure. Uh, so-called crisis pregnancy centers have been operations that have been set up to counsel women out of abortion and many of and to provide alternatives to abortion. Um, the problem that we've seen with many crisis pregnancy centers is that they engage in really misleading and deceptive tactics to try to, in some instances, trick women into going, thinking that they're going to an actual place that may provide abortion. Um, they may uh, engage in, in all sorts of really horrible uh, conduct. Um, you know, I, I have personally, because remember, I was head of civil rights before this. I used to do these investigations into crisis pregnancy centers. I have sat across from women who believed that they were going to Planned Parenthood only to find out it was problem pregnancy. This is a common name of one of our crisis pregnancy centers. Literally, what problem pregnancy has done around the state is they go and they find out the Planned Parenthood locations. They set up right next door and they... Um, you know, women will, will go there thinking that they're actually getting counseling on, on abortion and, and being able to access those services. Instead, you know, they get there, um, they're shown pe- pictures of, of, of fetuses, they're, they're um, 
you know, uh, really, really um, almost almost harassed in some instance into into delaying any um, any service. And as a result, it gets even more and more dangerous for some of these women who, you know, may have to get uh, an abortion later than than they otherwise would. Or in some instances, you know, um, they may end up uh, not being able to, to access abortion services. So my office sent out in the wake of the Dobbs decision a message to crisis pregnancy centers that they need to abide by the law. They need to follow the law. They can't mislead. They can't deceive. They can't lie. Um, and they sure can't keep women hostage in these rooms, uh, subjecting them to incredibly um, uh, uh, difficult commentary and and conduct that actually hurts the emotional and physical well-being of these women. So uh, that was my message. Um, not illegal, but what they do can be illegal. And so I just want to be really clear about what is and isn't acceptable under the law. You know, Attorney General, speaking of abortion, as you know, of course, the governor signed the bill that went through the legislature that would uh, broaden access to abortion even after the Roe Act here was signed a while back and keep uh, prosecutions from happening to people who provide uh, abortions um, being tackled by law enforcement from out of state. Are we in good shape in Massachusetts with abortion, no matter what, or except for the personhood thing, I guess if Congress does pass a personhood um, uh, recognition the of the fetus, then we would not be in good shape. But barring that, are we in good shape? Well, I think that we are in much better shape than we were and in much better shape than many other states. And I want to thank Governor Baker and I want to thank the legislature for the actions taken last week. Important legislation that is going to protect providers, is going to protect patients here in Massachusetts. Um, Massachusetts has been a beacon of health care. Reproductive health care is health care. Massachusetts has been um, important in, in recognizing, I think, that, that reproductive freedom is, is, is a core value here and something that we need to lead on and protect in this time as we look across at what has happened on the Supreme Court and what is happening around this country. You know, someone just uh, wanted to know in a text message talking about attorney generals from different states announcing suits or initiatives in response to so-called liberal overreach. Um, and obviously you've done a lot uh, with other uh, attorneys general. But what is it? Attorneys? I always can mix that up. Yep. Are you attorneys generals or are you attorney generals? Or oh what are you? We're, group. <laughs> We're AGs. You're AGs. Okay, that solves that problem. Uh. Uh, but this, uh, this uh, texter uh, from Wakefield is wondering if uh, AGs from around the country have thought about forming coalitions in response to Supreme Court decisions. I don't know if, if you can do that. Can you? I mean, do something to fight back against the Supreme Court? I don't know. Um, yeah, it's what we've been doing in many different ways through many different administrations. I mean, it is it is pretty common for states through AGs to come together in legis in litigation. I mean. All those suits that were brought uh, by my office and, and others during the years of the Trump administration to fight efforts to dismantle the ACA or the DACA program or roll back environmental protections, those were multi-state actions. So AGs oftentimes will work together um, on these things and will continue to do so, whether that's standing up for for uh, access to, to, to uh, abortion or whether it's defending democracy, frankly, and, and the freedom to vote um, against uh, all of what's happening out there in so many places where you see efforts to, to, to really rip that away. So it is, it is an important, it is an important, you know, it is important that, that states 
work together. And, and you've seen that. We've also worked together uh, on combating the opioid crisis, going after opioid manufacturers and distributors. But I will say specific to that question about the court, sad state of affairs is we've got a highly politicized court right now, and that will continue for some time. But there's a lot of work that is done at the state court, um, in, in our state courts, and there's a lot of decisions that are going to be made by federal uh, district courts as well as uh, courts of appeal around the country. And so we're going to need to be engaged and involved on all levels. Ed Markey is one of the people leading the charge to expand the size of the Supreme Court. Do you support that? I'm open to that. I'm open to that. I wouldn't have said that months ago, Jim, but I think given what we've seen from the Supreme Court, um, it, that is just it is so hypocritical to, to have the, the decision brewing one day where you basically, you know, are, are once again um, contorting what, what the Second Amendment affords and basically allowing people to, to carry guns where, where they want, wherever they want to the next day is uh, cutting off access to abortion. I mean, and rolling back 50 years of precedent, the only time a constitutional right has been taken away, by the way, by the court, is, oh. is when it comes to Dobbs and abortion. So I wouldn't have said that, but I'm, I'm really, you know, it is, so, um, it is so disheartening as a lawyer to see what's happened with that court. Before we get back to the calls, you mentioned the Second Amendment. I, I have to say, I'm not totally clear, if you could do it briefly, what guidance you put out and then what the legislature did last night on the – Gun front? Could you, in, yeah, in light I mean, of the New York decision, which obviously is about a law that's not dissimilar from what we have, what is the, what did you and the legislature do? Hey, look, we've got to follow the law. And the Supreme Court came out with something that basically changed something that we had in law here. Um, under what was then Massachusetts law, we allowed police chiefs to, for good reason, uh, decide not to issue a, a license. Good reason was the term of art. It was That's a term of art. Okay. It was, yeah, exactly. And basically what the, the Supreme Court said is that language is no longer allowed. So I think it was important what the legislature did. It cleaned that up. It removed that language. And it also uh, did some other things to tighten up our, so our laws So police here. chiefs still have some discretion? About, oh, sure. They, they do. do. They do okay. around suitability and uh, and the like. So okay. that remains in, in place. Um but that that legislation, I think, was important as a matter of cleaning up and and addressing. Um, because you know, people should know as as much as I take issue with the Supreme Court, I'm going to follow Supreme Court precedent, and I understand that. I understand what it is to follow the law, and we wanted to make sure that uh, that happens. So we cleaned that language got cleaned up um, by the legislature. It is still the case that licensing authorities and police chiefs can can ask you know, why somebody wants a license um, and can use that information to evaluate whether that person is entitled to a license. Well, when you say when you say you have to follow the Supreme Court, Marjorie asked you a question a minute ago that this is a discussion we have with former Judge Gertner about uh, the, the one thing that would override whatever we've done in Massachusetts would be if uh, Congress, under Republican control with the Republican president, decided to grant personhood to fetuses. If that if they did that and they essentially outlawed abortion nationally, if you happen to end up being governor I'm not going to let that happen. I, well, what hey, does that mean? I'm not going to deal with that? a hypothetical because that question is way too serious. If that were to happen, that sets in motion a whole lot of other things to fall. And I will do everything I can to make sure that... Would you obey that, a law if it exists? I'm not going to even dignify that with a response, Jim. No offense to you, but that is not going to happen. And people need to, I'm glad you raised it, realize what is at stake here because we need to get ready to fight. With Alito's decision on DOPS, let's be clear. It puts at stake access. It, it eviscerates and cuts off access to abortion in so many places. It also puts at, at, at stake all the important measures that have been taken around everything from contraception to biracial marriage to marriage equality to civil rights protections generally. So, 
you see, I have a very hot reaction to the question, but it's just, it's really just a reflection of my anger um, at, at what has come to pass. And so it's just to say, I will do everything and put my energy into not thinking hypothetically about what happens or, or doesn't happen, because if that, you know, I can't even contemplate that. I can contemplate and work right now to make sure that does not happen um, across this country. Robert from Lowell, you're on with the Attorney General. Hey, Robert. Hey, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. And um, first, uh, before I get to my point, I'm wondering about um, the lieutenant race. Uh, Jim asked you about the Democratic nomination for uh, Attorney General. Have you are you uh, announced you're voting for Cecilia? Um, Oh, Robert, nice to uh, hear from you. I hope you enjoyed the folk festival this weekend up there. I'm sorry, <laughs> I, I, couldn't, I, sorry was, I couldn't make it. It's a, it's a great I take. I was a volunteer. It was oh. tremendous. And probably about 100,000 people showed up. Wow. It's, uh, it's great. And great to see. Yeah, it's but great. no Joni Mitchell. Oh, uh, 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 that was uh, okay. No, no, I um, that was awesome, by the way, in Newport so? that Brandy Carlisle oh, did that. God. I give huge credit to Brandy Carlisle, who brought Tanya Tucker forward years ago, right? And then she brought Dolly Parton to the stage there, I think, just before COVID. That was maybe one of the... And then here she is bringing... It's it's really it's it was really yeah. cool. But to Robert's question, no, Jim asked me a question about the AG's race. It is something that that um, you know, I, I, as somebody who's the sitting AG and held that office, I have a view on. I the the, the candidates in in the LG's race, I I think are are, are great. Um, but I'll leave that to the to the voters to decide. Robert, uh, what was your question though? You said before I get to my all question, this is, is for the question? voters to decide. But I'm a little bit I'm a little bit obsessed with. Um, Lately, with infrastructure mm-hmm. uh, here in Lowell, if you remember, to get uh, to get into downtown Lowell, you have to cross the Central Street Bridge right at the beginning of downtown Lowell. It's been out of commission now, going into its partially out of going into the fourth year. What my question is um, of string, you know, problems with the planning and the design and whatnot. But my question is, DOT is, I oh. think, primary agency. Responsible for the planning. Hey, Robert, because you're, you're, Robert, your line is horrible. You got to ask the question quickly or we're never going to hear it. I'm sorry. My question is MADOT, your plans for possibly overhauling it, or is it a wonderfully operational um, agency over there and nothing to worry about? Robert, thanks for the call. (laughs) Well, Robert, maybe that was. A rhetorical question. You know, obviously, there's a lot to worry about when it comes to public transportation, the state of affairs. I will tell you, those those infrastructure supports are really, really important in Lowell and elsewhere. Um, And a lot comes in terms of economic development from those investments. And I will do everything in my power um, to to make sure that we are supporting those kinds of investments. I was in Lowell uh, probably about a month ago, and it really is it really is remarkable all that has happened there, the transformation there, the possibility there. It's a great city, um, and uh, you know, a city that that uh, that I love, and um, that really needs, you know, that we. This is, you know, this is part of my frustration. This is why we need to to be out there with action. This is why I hope in the coming days the legislature and the administration can work to move ahead on some things because those investments are really important.
We're almost out of time, AG, but the, um, this is a texter who wants to know what's being done about companies getting minority contracts with the state who are not legally minority-owned. This person says they've contacted your office about this uh, many times, have not heard back, and they're concerned about scamming people. We have a minute. Yeah. yeah um, actually, my office has investigated and taken action against uh, a number of folks who have um, uh, committed fraud that way, meaning they say that they are doing work with minority-owned businesses or women-owned businesses but are not. So I would stay on the line, and we'll take your information, and I'll make sure that my team follows up with you directly. Any of the any information out there uh, like that, we want to we want to become aware of so that we can take whatever action is appropriate. Okay, this so we have 30... There's a texter who needs to email if you want us to oh, yeah. get your information to bprwgbh.org. Thank, Thank, Thank you. you. Only have 30 seconds. Do you ever see Joni Mitchell? No, no. You cannot. Just, uh, I saw her at Radio City. Yeah. Probably before you were born, I'm embarrassed GBH to say, a, a long time ago. We had a great show last night, 8 to 9, about Joey Mitchell's whole career. It was terrific. Oh, right? I didn't know GBH. that. Oh, fantastic. really? I'll yeah, have to go back fantastic. And, I'll have to go back and listen it to that. Yeah. It was great ever. Also, you had Bill McKibben on last week on his book. He's an environmental <gasps> champion. I have. I bought that um, I bought that about a month ago. How great it's is it? It's great. And it's a. it It was really eye-opening. It was a, really, you know, it was a different perspective on how to think about... Um, uh, what's happening right now in our country? Yeah, he's a really talented writer. About station and thinker, wagons and yeah, an organizer I, I really, and whatever. Um, Love the way he did. Attorney that. General, it is very nice to see you. Thank you so much. We'll see you in a month and uh, enjoy the uh, summer as best one can, I guess, <laughs> yeah. considering what you're doing with yourself yeah. here. All right. Well, thank you so much. Good thank you. Good to see very you. Very much. Bye-bye. That, of course, is Attorney General Maura Healy. She's with us for her monthly Ask the Attorney General a session, and we're really grateful to her for coming on with us. Coming up. Boston sports journalist and author Howard Bryant uh, joins us to talk about the legacy of basketball legend Bill Russell. Howard Bryant knows everything about Bill Russell, who died yesterday at the age of 88. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Public Radio. It's ESPN's Howard Bryant on the late, amazing Bill Russell. We'll also be taking your calls on Russell's legacy, both in basketball and civil rights. Then we'll shift to baseball with Katie Kroll. Heard of her? She's one of the first women ever to coach under the Red Sox banner. She currently works for the Portland Seahawks. After that, it's the Reverends Irene Monroe and Emmett Price and a pair of Kansas nuns challenging their state's abortion law. And... Exactly. And Beyonce's new album, Renaissance, comes equipped with a dance club ode to church girls. We'll also hear poetry from inaugural poet Richard Blanco. One poem from Robert Frost. Richard is back for another edition of The Village Voice. All that to come. Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GPH. Marjorie 
Egan. Welcome to hour number two of Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Logan, Jim. I have hiccups. This could be a nightmare, but I'm going to do my best here. In any case, uh, as you all know, Bill Russell died over the weekend at 88. Here to talk about Russell's legacy in Boston and basketball and American society, we're joined now by Howard Bryan. Howard's a sports journalist for ESPN and NPR's Weekend Edition, author of 10 books, including Full Dissidents, Notes from an Uneven Playing Field, and The Heritage, Black Athletes of Divided America, and The Politics of Patriotism. We're really glad to talk to you today, Howard. Thanks so much for your time. Hi, Jim. Hi, Marjorie. Hey, hey. Uh, great to talk to you again, Howard. Yeah, ditto. Appreciate your time very much. So, this, uh, did you ever get to meet uh, Bill Russell? I was just talking to Dan Shaughnessy about this a few minutes ago, and we were just listing the fact that I never got to meet Russ. I never, him, Ali, and Ted Williams, never got to meet any of them. Oh. So sad. I was like, and I was so close in 99 for the All Star game. Uh, at Fenway, and I didn't get a chance to go to the game, and I thought, you know, you always think there's going to be a chance, and then it never happens, and so it's really sad. And when I was at Muhammad Ali's funeral, that was one of the things I was like, I can't believe that. I oh my gosh! Well, it's not for today's topic, but I was at Ali Frazier one someday. We should talk about it, Howard. Maybe <laughs> the most exciting night of my life at Madison Square Garden. When you heard about uh, the passing of uh, Bill Russell, what was the first thing that? You thought about. I mean, you've written about him, obviously, and we've discussed him with you. What was the first thing that you thought about? Well, I think the first thing that hit me was that even at 88, when whoever is 88 years old is always day to day, but it's Bill Russell that those rules aren't supposed to apply. Um, I thought about just an immense sadness about how we protect our time. Everyone protects their own time. Our, you know, we know our period, and I was just thinking about the lineage that Russ was the. I'm thinking, gee, Bob Cousy is the last remaining member of the 1957 team. Yeah. You're thinking about the fact that Russell was always present. And he was before my time. I never get to see him play. But and you grow up in Boston, and especially if you grow up in, you know, in black Boston. I grew up in Dorchester. Everyone always told stories about you know, Bill, seeing Bill Russell and he you know, owned Slades down in, in Roxbury, not far from where my mother grew up on 998 Tremont Street. Huh. And so there was always this feeling of 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 russell being present and it was also just it was also that but it was also the other piece of that when you grow up here and you you know the celtics by heart and now now russell's gone and we lose sam jones last year we lose tommy heinz in the year before we lose casey jones the same year jojo's gone dennis johnson is gone and you're just starting to think about what happens to all of these bedrocks of your uh, of your of your childhood and of your life and it gives you a certain perspective that um, that really does make you think and make you reflect. And, and it was really, really poignant and very bittersweet yesterday. Well, Howard Bryant, you know, we've, I, I've learned a lot about Bill Russell just reading up in the, in the last few days about his mom. And we're going to play some sound for what he said about his mom when he was a kid. But you wrote a piece about him a, a while ago, back in 2011 for ESPN. And you started it with a quote from Russell. I always felt it was better to be un- mm. better to understand than to be understood. And, of course, that's a famous St. Francis prayer a poem that uh, a lot of kids grow up with, you know, better to, to love than be loved and forgive, forgiven than to forgive and all that kind of stuff. Was he a religious guy? Is that where part of his uh, power to stand up to wrong came from or not? I, I, think it was, I think it was more watching the country. And I was working on a piece about this just a few minutes ago and thinking about how – 
with Russell, we all come from our given place. And I was thinking about how with Russell, it was very unique that the central fact of his life was being born black in 1934 in Monroe, Louisiana. And you think about all of the dominoes that fall based on that very fact. His family would have stayed in Louisiana had it not been for the racism of being down there, being essentially driven out of town by having his mother be accosted by a police officer and in, and essentially making his father say, we have to get out of here. That's how you end up in Oakland. People talk about the fantastic and legendary uh, lineage of Oakland ballplayers, especially at McClyman's High School. I mean, think about all those great players. Frank Robinson and Bill Russell were basketball teammates. Veda Pinson was there. Kirk Frank Flood Robinson, the great Reds? The great Hall of Famer. They were on the same basketball team. I didn't know that. And Paul Silas, the great Boston Celtic, oh, also went to McClyman's High. But they all, lived in, they all went to McClyman's because West Oakland was the only neighborhood that black people were allowed to live in in the 1940s. And so... You He plays for the Boston Celtics, but the only reason he's playing for the Celtics is because St. Louis is so racist they don't want a black player to lead them. So they trade Bill Russell on draft day to Boston in exchange for Ed McCauley and for Cliff Hagan. And so this central fact of his life affected all of these different places on the road. And so for him, he's watching this. And it shapes him. It shapes who he is. And, and it creates for him, while this is happening, a civil rights movement also happening that really made him make a decision that a lot of athletes won't make, which is I am not going to separate what's happening in the world from you watching me play. And yeah. it made for a really, really prickly, difficult guy who... We spent so much more time wondering, hey, what's wrong with Bill Russell? I remember this when I was a kid during the Bird era. Why is Bill Russell so bitter? Maybe we should actually ask what Bill Russell was going through. What was happening at that time? He was one of the few guys who was not going to separate what was from, from our ability yeah. to celebrate him. And you know, Howard, Brian, I'm old enough being an obvious white woman growing up near Boston, not in Boston, hearing a lot of disparagement from people in, in my family, I'm embarrassed to admit, about this uppity guy complaining, mm -hmm. you know, about about what was going on um, with him. But I wanted to mention uh, the, the, the mom, because I thought this, uh, uh, his mother must have been really something, because this is a little story he told in a TV special about her showing him how to stand up for himself. Here it is. When we first moved into the projects, my mother was unpacked, and I was sitting on the steps, and these four kids ran by, and one of them slapped me as he was going by. So I did what nine-year-old kids do. I went home and told my mother. I went upstairs and told my mother, that guy hit me. She grabbed the house keys, and we went all through the projects looking for those guys. And she said, these are the guys? I said, yes, ma'am. Well, you're going to fight every one of them one at a time. It was five of them. <laughs> I lost three and won two. <laughs> <laughs> and that last two. <laughs> Did. No, exactly. And it's funny, you know, once again, th this is the the story of 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 Bill Russell and that he ends up in and those you know, where he was was a tough, tough neighborhood. He was down in the Acorn Projects down in West Oakland. And he's from Monroe, Louisiana. He moves to Monroe. There's another resident of Monroe, Louisiana, who moves and is living two blocks from him in that same complex. And that was Huey Newton. Oh, and gosh. Uh, who wow. would go on to to be the founder of the Black Panthers. And so 
so much of their story, of this story, it's an American story, but so much of it does shape who these people would become. And and I think that when you then come to Boston and as a professional athlete to you know, to the disparagement that you heard, you know, Marjorie growing up with, with Russell was that we expect the athlete to be grateful for everything they get. Yeah. You're just playing a kid's game. You should be happy. The whole thing. We've heard all of those tropes and cliches before, but Bill Russell would not separate those two. You know, we're talking to Howard Bryant. Howard, uh, I assume even if people were not aware of the specifics of some, at least, of the racism that Russell encountered, forget around the country, but right here in his own, I was going to say his own backyard, literally in his own backyard, in his own house, this line that line that has stuck with me, this flea market of racism, as he wrote about in Boston, what was the turning point that caused him in later years to decide he would spend more time here and was willing to be honored when he hadn't been in the past, was there? Was it an evolution? Was it a moment? A thing? What happened? I think it's. I think it's time. And I think what ends up happening is, is I think that he was energized also in a lot of ways by the '08 team, by Kevin Garnett coming really? into Boston, and by having a player like Kevin Garnett who played a lot like the way yeah. we feel Bill Russell used to play in terms of being a defensive stalwart, being a leader, being a, somebody who really stood tall and represented not just the team, but the city in so many ways. People love that passion that Garnett brought. And I think that really had a lot to do with with Russell um, being allowed to enjoy this a little bit more. And I, I remember asking Henry Aaron this a long time ago, the great Hank Aaron, saying, is there a moment in your life where despite everything, you can just sort of put an umbrella in your drink and say, I made it. I'm good. And, and, and he said the same thing that I felt that maybe Bill Russell sort of felt as well was, which was, yeah, I think when it's time, you'll see me and I'll do this on my own terms. And, and you're able to sort of reflect and look in the rearview mirror and, and, and realize that people absolutely love you. And maybe there are going to be some moments that you don't feel like being on stage. And then there are going to be others where you're going to let people celebrate you. And I also think that one of the biggest things that had to do with it as well was the fact that his daughter was in town and was working at, at Harvard. And, and I think that there's a, there is a, a, a closing of the circle here that at the end of the day, Bill Russell knows just as a player that he wasn't the number one guy and he wasn't the ego guy. He was here to facilitate for others. And I think that, I, I think that seeing this and seeing this level of, um, of athlete come forward and be more active sort of motivated him as well. Talking to Howard Bryant, one of his many books is The Heritage, Black Athletes, a Divided America and the Politics of Patriotism. Can you explain a little bit of history to me? I, I sort of have emblazoned in my head that incredible photograph in Cleveland of Jim Brown, maybe the greatest football player who ever lived. Uh, I think then Lou Alcindor, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Oh, Cleveland Summit. Right, yes. one of the greatest basketball players, obviously, mm -hmm. of all time. Uh, um uh, Bill Russell and, of course, Muhammad Ali. What I read in the last 24 hours that I never knew before, I always believed they were there to support Ali in this moment where he was a Vietnam War resistor and they were there to support him. But I read a little bit in some accounts overnight that that at least some of that threesome and other athletes of less renown, I guess, at the time, weren't also sure that 
Ali was doing the right thing and that may have been trying to talk him out of his stance before they ended up giving him all of his support? Am I bastardizing a story? Is that true? One of the great stories of the Cleveland summit and that famous picture is that it wasn't all completely solid. You know, it wasn't complete solidarity. What it was was they wanted to know what he was all about. And I think with Russell, there was no ambiguity because Russell was against the Vietnam War as well. So he was Uh one of the early people who was against it. And he is... It's really, really interesting when you think about what's happening there. You have Bill Russell also has a very close relationship with Martin Luther King Jr., as does Jackie Robinson. And during that period, Jackie Robinson and MLK are arguing about Vietnam Mm. because because Jackie is still pro-Vietnam. He's still pro-government on this. And so during this period, you've got these incredibly titanic figures trying to figure out where this world is going. And... What are we going to say and how are we going to say it? And I think that one of the big things about the Cleveland Summit was when they walked out of there, it was, oh, yeah, he's Muhammad Ali is the real deal. He's he is 100 percent behind this and we're 100 percent behind him. And I think one of the other pieces of it, too, if I remember correctly, was the. You know, there were also opportunities to sort of try to monetize this. Like, we need to also find work for Ali Mm. because he was about to engage in something that was going to cost him three and a half years of his career, his prime earning years. We're talking to Howard Bryant uh, from ESPN and NPR's Weekend Edition. You know, let's talk a little bit about basketball here to 11 championships in 13 years for Bill Russell. People talk about how he revolutionized the game. What are they talking about? Well, they're talking about the modern game. I mean, when you when you look at the game today, you see Bill Russell. And I don't know if you go back to your old black and white pictures. Go back and look at a picture of, uh, of basketball in the 50s. In the center was this big, lumbering, plodding guy. Yeah. He was the biggest guy. He was sort of stout <laughs> and probably couldn't jump an inch off of the ground. Bill Russell brought the aerial game to the NBA. Uh, Bill Russell was the guy who suddenly now is leaping in the air and blocking shots. And I remember Tommy Heinsohn used to talk about the famous Hey Bill defense that the Celtics used to play, which was whenever one guy got beat, they would yell, Hey Bill, and Bill would just move over and, and, and essentially guard his guy and then guard another guy at once. And so that was the... He really did bring that athleticism and and the fast break and the speed of the game. And the reason why the Celtics would beat everybody is because Bill Russell anchored the defense. He made your team have to adapt to him. The Celtics previously to Russell just were not a very good defensive team. It's really important to remember, as much as we talk about the great Celtic dynasty, Red Arbeck hadn't won a championship. Bob Cousy hadn't won a championship. Bill Sharman hadn't won a championship. The Celtics hadn't even gotten to the NBA Finals. And then Russell gets there, and they win in his rookie season. He gets hurt in 58, so they don't repeat against St. Louis. Then they go win eight in a row. And everything changes. And I think that when you were talking earlier, Marjorie, about about where Russell's motivations come from, it was also very, very difficult for someone like Bob Cousy to have to recognize Bob Cousy was a superstar in Boston. Bob Cousy was the league superstar. He was the best player in the game. He had to admit that the game was changing and that Bill Russell was the better player and that it really wasn't Cousy's team and, and it was Bill Russell's team and that the entire sport was shifting and how hard it was ego-wise to sort of let that go and to sort of close the circle. If you read Gary Pomerantz's great book on Russell Auerbach and, and Cousy, The Last Pass, which came out a couple of years ago, that Cousy writes a letter 
as as a ninety year old yeah. writes a letter to 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 Bill Russell to sort of close the circle and to apologize for not supporting Russell in Boston as much as he should have, and Russell never responded. Yeah. And Uzi is now ninety three years old, and Bill Russell's gone, and that circle is closed by life. And it's uh, I I was asking myself when I was thinking about this, what happens? What do we do? when someone doesn't accept your apology. Yeah. And and I think that was one of the things we always talked about Russell being trapped in Boston by how come, you know, but Russell was so bitter. I think Russell was free. I think he left it to the city to reconcile itself. And then finally you've got the statue and everything else, but what a what a very intense hard place to be for everybody involved but you know we actually were discussing that cozy letter with maura healy was here right before you howard and she's developed quite a relationship with cozy she said so i'm sure been two guards two small guards and uh, <laughs> uh, uh at different times in their lives but was cozy an outlier in terms of in terms of the celtics around russell in terms of not being there f- as much as they should no, have I been there for. So. I mean, I, and I think, I mean, you can go as far as you want into the product of their times and the rest of it, but yeah. I think where it really does come from is the holding on to your greatness. It's a hard thing to do. You know, Bob Cousy never won a championship without Bill Russell. Yeah. yeah. Bill Russell won many championships without Bob Cousy. And I think it was maybe more even the athletic piece of it. And, and, and also, when you're Bob Cousy, I think the way that Russell viewed it was this is your issue. This is not my issue. I have yeah. already moved on. This is yesterday's news for me. If you want to reconcile and figure out where you were, that's on you. And that's what I mean about what do you do when someone doesn't yeah. want to accept your apology? It's really up to you to sort of figure it out. Whereas Russell is like, I've already moved on. I've already done this. I've already done this work. And this is the thing that we all must go through if we're lucky enough to live to 93 years old. There's going to be a lot that we look at in the rearview mirror and we hope that that people are willing to go along with us, but not everybody will be. Mm. Howard Bryant, one last thing for me. Talk about the relationship between Bill Russell and Red Auerbach. Yeah, fantastic relationship. And, 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 and Russ wrote a book on it um, a few years ago. And I think that those two understood each other. You always need that partnership. And I think that I, I've always been sort of ambivalent about pieces of that relationship and that people are always trying to defend Boston because, you know, because that's our reflex in this town to, you know, we're not as bad. Well, what about everybody else? And, but it's like, well, so hold, hold on a second. If you're going to constantly give people credit for their courage, you also have to recognize what is requiring the courage. What's the risk? What are they risking? And so for Red Arback to see Russell for what he was, to be the person who put five black players on the court at once, to be the person to hire Russell as the first black head coach in the history of North American sports. To do all of those things speaks to a level of professional respect and that, that has to be understood. As much as we talk about the relationship between Branch Rickey and Jackie Robinson, the bottom line is, is that after Jackie Robinson retired, Branch Rickey ran two franchises. He ran Pittsburgh and he ran St. Louis again and never offered Jackie Robinson a yeah. job. So for Red Arbeck to see that I'm also willing to put you in an executive position and to have you compete against everybody, not just be the best black player in the court, it actually does say something. 
Howard, we really appreciate your time as always. It's great to talk oh, to you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for your great work, Howard. Always a pleasure to, to talk to you and read your stuff. Thank you. Thank you. Howard Bryant is a sports writer for ESPN and NPR's Weekend Edition and author of 10 books, including Full Dissonance, Notes from an Uneven Playing Field, and The Heritage, Black Athletes, A Divided America and the Politics of Patriotism. He writes at least as well, if not better, than he talks, so it's worth your, <laughs> worth your time. Now we're going to open up the phone lines and text lines to hear your, your thoughts on the passing of Bill Russell and his lasting legacy, the number 877-301-8970. You can call us or text us at that number. You are listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. What? Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Brady and Marjorie Egan. We're going to open the lines, as Marjorie said, to hear from you about the passing of Bill Russell, legendary Celtic, legendary activist. Stood out, obviously, from his days as a player, as the first black head coach in a major American sports league for his visibility on civil rights. We want to hear from you about the late, great Bill Russell, 877-301-8970, or you can tweet us at BOS Public Radio. I'm particularly interested, by the way, if younger people who weren't around to see Russell Play well. You don't have to be younger. Actually, he hasn't played in decades since the what, late sixties, I guess. What you know about uh, uh, Bill Russell at eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy? Well, I have to say uh, we didn't mention this when when uh, Howard Bryant expressed his regrets not having met Bill Russell. Marjorie and I did about a uh, maybe ten to fifteen years ago. We were working in another radio station, mm-hmm. and uh, Bill Russell walked into a studio expecting uh, to see somebody he knew pretty well, Mike Barnacle, uh, to spend an hour with him. And when who we knew, as I say. Instead, he encountered me and Marjorie, who he didn't know. Right. And, and is it fair to he say he was not happy? He was not <laughs> particularly happy, but he had made it. He just written a book about management, actually, using the principles that he had used, embraced on the court, and how they applied to management of companies, businesses, nonprofits, etc., and the first 10 minutes was really strained and unpleasant. And I have to say, I don't know what the, the moment was that turned things around, but the last 45 minutes was this thrilling and exciting a time with somebody who was the best at what he did at, of anybody who ever lived uh, that I, I just can't imagine. And then, you know what was beautiful? I, I, knowing that he didn't do autographs. But in light of the fact that the last 50 minutes went so well, Marjorie had said before to me, she said, do you think he'd sign his book for my kid? And I said, well, I don't think so. And I figured be bold for a moment. And I asked him if she'd sign the book for uh, Marjorie's son. Yeah, and he did. And he did. Yeah. And I didn't realize till last night when I was reading about him why he did. Because the reason he did not sign autographs is he said he'd rather speak to someone for 15 seconds than just sign his name. It was meaningless. And obviously, I guess he had determined that because he spoke to us and we to him for an hour, that uh, a signature was appropriate. And he did it. And I have to say, it was one of the most... People say, what are your most memorable interviews? It was about as amazing an hour as one can possibly imagine. We want to know what your reflections are on the passing 
of uh, Bill Russell at 88. The number is 877-301-8970. There are a lot of great anecdotes. <clears throat> you know, Dan Johnson wrote a great column. Adrian Walker did, wrote a yeah. great column. John Powers um, uh, wrote a, a straighter column, but it's got a lot of information in the Globe about about um, his life. And when he was talking about Boston being a, a flea market of racism, uh, that was Bill Russell's line. <clears throat> he wrote in this um, in this book, the um, it's called Second Wind, the memoirs of an opinionated man, that he'd never seen a city like Boston more involved with finding new ways to dismiss, ignore, or look down on other people. And I thought that's quite a line, by the way. But as I thought, I didn't grow up here. I grew up fifty miles south here in Fall River. But Boston is very. We are very. Uh, you know, it's the Yankees versus the Irish, and it was the Yankees versus African American. The, the Irish versus the African Americans, and then it was you know versus the Italian. I mean, we're very obsessed with where you came from and where your uh, what your heritage is and when your family went to school. And not every place in America is quite like that. Plus, it takes also a long time to be considered <clears throat> a Bostonian. You can be here decades mm-hmm. and you're not quite... But by the way, you know, we, we touched on, we didn't go into detail, but particularly for listeners who are younger, uh, uh, people went and put graffiti with the N-word on his house. Mm-hmm. They... If you'll excuse the expression, they defecated in, in his house, in his on his house. bed. Yes. I mean, it, it just the most grotesque racism directed uh, uh, at this man who was bringing so much to, well, even if he wasn't, but bringing so much to the city. Uh, he endured that. And as I said to Howard Bryan, he decided later in life, I don't know if it was to forgive because he didn't, as, as Howard said, I thought beautifully, he didn't uh, uh, accept the apology of his teammate, Bob Cousy. He just, I think, on a phone call, uh, acknowledged it, but didn't, uh, you know, accept it as such. But it's amazing that you could ever be forgiving enough to come back after experiences uh, like that. And by the way, even if you're not a basketball fan, I was watching video. I haven't seen video of Bill Russell probably in a decade. Obviously, we all saw a video all over television last night. The short one shorts. of the most great, and, <laughs> but also one of the most graceful men. Oh my god! You know, six ten, six nine and three quarters, whatever. His movements were so beautiful and so ballet like, and it, it just it. He was an artist on the court, off the court, in the world, and it's just. And and if you haven't read about the Cleveland Summit we talked about mm-hmm. with the other greats, it's a wonderful and important story about a critical time in Ali's life and. Other probably the most prominent black athletes in the world coming to uh, his aid. Well, there's also a, 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 a lot of stories about his refusal to uh, uh, accept so-called second-class st- status as a mm-hmm. black man in or out of uniform. He's, there's quoted in the John Powers piece, Russell is, a man without integrity, belief, or self-respect is not a man, and a man who won't is- express his convictions, has no convictions. And that brings me to the, to the story that's often repeated, and we'll hear Bill Russell talk about this himself in a 2013 NBA TV documentary about uh, called Mr. Russell's Home, talking about his decision not to play in Kentucky. Here's Bill Russell. We were booked to play a game in Lexington, Kentucky. Casey went down to the restaurant in the hotel we were staying, and they would not serve him. I decided and the other guys decided to go along with me not to play. So I told Ray we were leaving. I said, because it's important to me that everybody everywhere knows that the black players decided they'll stand up for themselves. Although one of the newspapers in St. Louis wrote that the black players embarrassed the Celtics and they should be suspended and fined. Wow. 877-301-897. Let's go to Chris in the car. Chris, you're first on Boston Public Radio. Thank you for calling. Hi. Uh, hi there. Um, I was 
telling your receiver that I grew up in Reading, Mass. And oh, it's where, where he lived. For quite a while. Yeah. And um, I used to ride by on my bike and uh, see he and some of his buddies playing basketball in his front yard. No, <laughs> is that true? That is true. And uh, Reading being the uh, lily white community that it is, was and is, um, it was really kind of disgusting when when uh, he applied for membership to the local uh, golf club. Oh, don't tell us. The Meadowbrook Golf Club and, and was denied membership. So it's wow. really kind of sad. Uh, I didn't... Uh, a great man. And, yeah. uh, I'd had to deal with the, the unfortunate realities of our racist society. Chris, thank you for your uh, recollection. We really appreciate it. 877-301-8970. Well, you mentioned how he was reluctant to sign autographs because he would rather talk to somebody uh-huh. for a while. Um, <clears throat> but he was in it, he was in the FBI's files. And the FBI file, uh, they referred to him as, quote, an arrogant Negro who won't sign autographs for white children, close quote. And then John Is that Power- in the Hoffa days, I'm guessing? I'm, I'm not it doesn't but, say. Yeah. It doesn't say when he was in the fob, but that they said that was in his file, and then he talked Hoover about Hoover days. I'm sorry to mean Hoover. I mean Hoover, J. Edgar. Yeah. And then um, we talked about with Howard Bryant how the Celtics back in the 50s had been the first to draft an African American and also the first to start five players. That was Red Orback. Five black players who did that. Yeah, five mm-hmm. black players. Sorry, and of course a Russell becoming uh, a player coach, first black uh, coach. But it talks about how uh, his grandfather came to see him play yeah. in Boston and says. He apparently was after the game back where the players were all showering. And this is from his grandfather, who was a former farmer in Drayman. He said, I never thought I'd live to see the day when the water would run off a white yeah. man onto a black man and the water would run off a black man onto a white man. And that's as he was observing a Sam Jones black guy next to John Havlicek, a uh, white guy. Who wrote? Um, was that the John Powers piece in the Globe? Who wrote John the, Powers wrote yeah, that was a great, great, it was great, great piece in the Globe. The, the pieces are all great, but yeah. I, I particularly like John story. Powers because it had a lot of anecdotes from uh, from Russell's life, which I um, was completely unaware of. Me too. So. Susan in Fairhaven, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Um, I met Phil Russell about 40 years ago when oh. I was a young TV engineer at Channel oh. 68. Oh. Do you remember that yes. station? Yes. Um, they did a halftime show and since I, for the Celtics, and since I was the fastest editor, <laughs> I was thrown into the tape room knowing nothing about basketball. <laughs> And I get into the tape room, and there's this very large, tall, black person standing there watching the pregame on the monitors. And I looked at him, and I said, you look like you might know something about basketball. <laughs> and he looked at me and kind of chuckled, and I said, I've got to put together this highlight reel, and I don't know what I'm doing. He sat with me the whole first half, no. taught me pretty much everything I know about basketball now. Then he says to me, I've got to go. And the next thing I know, he's out in the control room. He's the guest. (laughs) I still don't know who he is, and I see his name and everything, and I get home, and I say to my husband, did you ever hear of a guy named Bill Russell? That is a great story, Susan. (laughs) That is a great story. He was really wonderful to me. I mean, I probably got a kick out of the, you know, I didn't know who he was, and that might have, uh, you know. Well got a chuckle out of that but um he was really very very kind that is terrific that is a great story susan thank you for sharing it 
We appreciate it. 877-301-8970. Joe from Duxbury said he was 13, second day as a new job as a caddy in Marshfield. End of the day, caddy master asked if I'll go out again for nine holes. It was Bill Russell. He was very funny, not a good golfer. We both laughed a lot. And when he came back in uh, two days later, he asked for me again. That's Joe. One of the great laughs, as I said before, ever, by the way. I'm sure you've all heard it in the last day or so if you hadn't. Be for Let's go to John in a car. You're on Boston Public Radio. We're reminiscing about the life and times of Bill Russell. Uh, when I, I was in college, many years. When yep. I was in college uh, a number of years ago, uh, a friend came in my room and told me about a fabulous movie that he'd just seen, The Graduate. So my girlfriend and I hustled over to the Copley Square Cinema to see The Graduate. We got there a few minutes late. The movie had already started. It was very popular, and there were exactly two seats left in the theater, which was dark. So my girlfriend took the fourth seat in. I took the third seat in, and it was behind this really tall African-American guy. And, and, and it was clear why that was one of the only two seats left in the theater, so I bemoaned my fate for the two hours, and I can tell you the song, Mrs. Robinson. I can tell you plastics, plastics, but really only the words. I don't have any visuals on the graduate. And then the lights come. And so I, I was, in my mind, I have to say, a little disparaging of my fortune and what is this guy doing being so tall sitting in this theater and then the lights came up after it was over and I had spent two hours sitting behind Bill Russell. That is another great one. Did you ever get, did you ever say hello to him, John, or no? I did, well, I didn't know who he was I have to say. That's uh, unbelievable. And I just, he made some funny comment about about, uh, oh gee, I, you know, I'm sorry, I'm so tall or something like that. And then as we're walking out, people are saying, hey, that's Bill Russell. That's Bill Russell. Pretty good. Yeah, no, I like that. I John, like that. that's another you, great John, one. Just another six foot, ten inch guy. You know, I mean, they're everywhere. By the way, the graduate <laughs> Dustin Hoffman's first movie. Yes, for, uh, those which, who which don't stands recall. out. By the way, I, I saw that. I saw that again. I saw it about recently. ten years ago. It's pretty yeah, great. It Thank you up. for the call. Uh, listen to this. Bill Russell was a great man. He spoke at my college graduation and said, "Never let anyone define you by your mistakes. We all have a dark side." He was well spoken and so gracious. I will always remember his wise words. That's from Denise in Ashland. And there's a lot of uh, mention of uh, what he put up with as a black guy at a time when there was so much hostility toward black guys playing the NBA. But not just on the court. In, his, in, um, in, in one of his books, he talked about the white cops in Oakland stopping him all the time, mm-hmm. grilling him and routinely calling him uh, the N-word. And then he wrote in his, in his book, Go Up for Glory, this is from John Powers again, um, you are a Negro, you are less, it covers every area, a living, smarting, hurting, smelly, Greasy substance, which covered you. I mean, boy, he really, he really nailed a lot of this stuff. Jay in Gloucester, thank you for calling. Hey, Jay. Hey, Jim. Hey, Marjorie. I Hi. love your show. Thank, thank you. you. Well, years ago, I was a kid, I think 15, and uh, our local church sponsored a speech by Bill Russell. So we all went, and he spoke for a while, and I can't really remember, but it, he had questions. So at the end, I said, uh, you know what, Mr. Russell, what would you think you would have done if you'd have been 5'9"? instead of six nine, <laughs> and he said uh 
he said, you know, I think I would have moved to Liberia and been a rubber farmer. And I thought, I didn't even know there was such a thing. Anyway, the show was over, the speech was over, and I ran up to the, state, uh, to the table and I asked him to sign my program. And he kind of looked at me funny, but he signed his name real quick. And then all the rest of the kids came charging up there. And he ran out the door, said goodbye, hopped into his uh, Lincoln Continental with the Celtic 6 license plates and drove off into the night. And every kid there said, hey, hey, you know, and I said, and I had my treasured Bill Russell autograph. That's another, story. <laughs> another great one. Jay, thanks for the call. You know, Marjorie, you played, correct me if I'm wrong, you played, uh, I think we were the talking to, to Howard. Up, to beat up the guys. But there's also another uh, a piece that actually has a GBH connection. You didn't play this, did you? No, I did not. He talked about growing up in Louisiana, another lesson from his mother, this is Bill Russell, obviously, and he did it on GBH's Basic Black. In 2001. So here is the voice of Bill Russell in 2001. She cautioned me. She said, now you go down the front yard. When there's a road out there, and somebody, people may walk by, may or may not, but the people that walk by may or may not say something to you. It doesn't make any difference what they say, because it has nothing to do with you. It only has to do with them. You know, if they don't know you, they and, and they say something about you, positive or negative, it has nothing to do with you. So don't pay attention to it. But I love you, so you must be okay. But I love you, what so you must be okay. Mother, that is pretty great. You know, think about that. If your nine-year-old kid was slapped by somebody, would you, would you take the kid and go find out who slapped him and say, "Take on five people in a row"? I don't think so. Go punch out the nine-year-old, right? <laughs> Richard and Beverly were talking about uh, the great Bill Russell. Welcome, Richard. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted people to know that he was my hero, my idol. He wouldn't sign my autograph, but he shook my hand. That's even better. Yeah, it was better. Uh, but I've been following the Celtics since 1949, and uh, he was absolute the best, not only the best athlete, but the best man I've ever seen. That's a beautiful way to put it. Richard, thank you very much for calling. That's pretty great. You know, and the other thing about That's it great. is that um, I'm old enough to remember before the Patriots were any good, which they weren't for a long time, before the Red Sox were any good, which they weren't for a long time, we had the Celtics. You know, the Celtics were like the big championship team when I was a little girl. And as we said before, he won 11 championships in 13 years, eight titles in a row with back-to-back titles as not just the coach, but a player coach. Yeah, but can I, both. Can I, and he was the first black coach, too, yes. in a major American sport. Uh, but uh, before we leave this, the thing you've left out of his resume, his basketball resume, mm-hmm. before winning, what is 11 out of 13? Yep. He won two national championships at San Francisco. Yep. He won a gold medal. I think in Melbourne, if yep. I'm not wrong, in the Olympics, yep. which has delayed his his start with the Celtics for a couple of months, and mm-hmm. then obviously he made up for lost time. So a, a champion of the Presidential on, Medal of Freedom at the White House from you know, Barack Obama. A, the, the beautiful, the smile on both Obama's yeah. face and Russell. And again, I'm sure people saw this last night, either stills or video of this. Is really it was really it was beautiful and so incredibly. Needless to say, well uh, deserved. So thank you for all your recollections. We really uh, meant a lot to us. Thank you so much. Okay, coming up, we're going from one pioneer in sports to the next. Katie Crawl joins us. She is a development coach for the Boston Red Sox. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She is Marjorie. And we're joined now by Katie Kroll. She's a player development coach for the Boston Red Sox affiliate team, the Portland Sea Dogs, along with Bianca Smith, who's also a minor league coach within the Red Sox organization. The Sox are now the first major league baseball organization to have two women coaches. Katie, it's really great to meet you. Thanks so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me, guys. This is a treat. Yeah, for congratulations. We're very happy to talk to you. Okay, but, but but I don't understand. What exactly do you do, please, Katie? <laughs> <laughs> I get that a lot. Don't yeah. worry. I would say my two areas of focus are on advanced scouting and pitch design. So who are we facing for the upcoming night? And then also, how can we best optimize a given pitcher's mix? And Bianca Smith, so some organizations, a decent number of organizations now have one woman. As I said in the introduction to you, Katie, the Red Sox are the first team with two. That makes a huge difference, I would think. It's much more than double. It's almost like a universe, at least a beginning universe, and I I guess shows a pretty serious commitment. No? Absolutely. I think we're a growing sorority of female coaches. I think there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. But when I was at Northwestern Gym, even in 2018, there were no female coaches. So I think Alyssa set the tone at the top, being part of the major league staff with the Giants. And I'm really excited and hopeful for what's to come. How do you know when you read about read an Alex Cora quote, I think about both of you. It was actually typical Cora was great, I I, I thought. But are, is the average player accepting of the notion that a woman is a coach of his team, are they? The players have been fantastic. And it's something that I don't take for granted, the respect or the ability to work with them and be a small part of their career development. I think you have a generation of players now, whether they came from the academy in the Dominican or they signed out of college where they've seen female trainers, they've seen female analysts. So I do think the paradigm is shifting. Is shifting. And I think they're at a place where they recognize that if someone can aid in their development or hopefully help them ascend the levels, they're going to interact with that person, whether or not they might be of a different race or gender. So, Katie Curl, how did this happen for you, you know, for, for uh, moms of little girls or young women that might be listening to us now? How did you make this career uh, change? Always grew up loving baseball, spent two years at the commissioner's office of Major League Baseball in New York after graduating from Northwestern, spent two years um, with the Reds, where the easiest comp I could describe myself, because people also didn't really know what I did there, was uh, Jonah Hill and Moneyball. You know, I helped (laughs) determine who should we sign, what should we pay them. But the minute you mentioned Jonah Hill, people are like, oh, I totally understand what you do. Okay. And then was wrapping up my MBA from the University of Chicago and was contacted by Google about joining their global strategy team, which was a super cool team to be a part of, had a really great boss. And I still felt like I had things left to do in baseball, Marjorie. And so the day after I left Cincinnati, I got calls from two National League teams and I was interested in the roles, but they felt very similar. They were pro scouting and analytics focused to what I had done previously. And then when I spoke to the Red Sox and spoke to a former colleague there and they said, we want to put you in uniform, we're going to put you in a dugout, you can coach first base. That was when the alarm bells went off and I thought, oh my gosh, like this is bigger than baseball. This is something that I just can't turn down. Well, it's a fairly, Marjorie, it's a fairly normal career path to go from Google's global strategy team to working (laughs) for the Portland Sea Dogs. So forget how the players treat you. And I accept what you say is true. If you say it is when you're on the field in, in uniform. And a little boy or a girl who sees you, what kind of reaction do you get from both? It's really powerful. And 
one of the coolest things in addition to being able to meet those little girls or to talk to their moms and say, you know, she's the only one on her little league team, but we cite you and we say, keep playing That's baseball. Great. There's a spot for you. You know, it's the little boys too, who are eight or nine years old, who are begging for an autograph, who now live in a world where they go to a baseball game and there's a woman on the field. So I think there are a lot of social and cultural factors at play here that is really amazing to be a part of and to think about what type of environment we're hopefully curating, where even if they don't necessarily become major league players. Maybe, you know, they go to law school or they go to medical school and they're now even more receptive to working with women than they ever were before. We're talking with Katie Crawl, a player development coach for the Boston Red Sox affiliate team, the the Portland Sea Dogs. And you're just 24 years old. You're such a young kid. I wonder something. You know, we just finished talking about Bill it's Russell. It's a hell of a way to address that, I should say, Marjorie. You're such a young kid, damn it. <laughs> um, we were just talking about Bill Russell, obviously, you know, one of the greats all time at the Celtics and basketball in general. And and um, and we know about Brittany Griner, who's overseas in a, in a Russian prison. And one of the reasons she's over there is because she's not making enough money in the in WNBA. Uh, to, and so she goes over there to make more money. And, of course, the NBA players make astronomical amounts of money. How do you see it as a woman? I mean, you're not a player, but you, you grew up in women's sports. Will we ever get anything close to parity in, in women's sports? Or are there certain sports maybe that we can? Or what do you see as the future? Women's soccer won a big victory, yeah. even after losing in court. That was a big deal. But go ahead, Katie. I'm sorry. Absolutely. No, Jim, I think you're spot on with that. Like there clearly is a market and an appetite for women's sports. I think we can see that with the U.S. women's soccer team. I think we can see that with every four years at the Olympics, women's swimming and women's gymnastics and women's volleyball become some of the most watched sports. So I think it's really on the media and it's really on the leagues to showcase the narratives, to think about these women the obstacles that they've overcome, the amazing feats that they're accomplishing, not only giving them their spotlight, but finding ways to make it mainstream and normalize it. So I just finished Billie Jean King's autobiography, which was absolutely amazing and so inspirational. You know, thinking about don't just accept that you're at the table, like call for what you deserve and ask for what you feel like you're entitled to. And I think that is like a simple message in some extent, but also like implementing it and being like, really committed to what you feel like you are owed, I think is something that we could all do a better job of as women. And I think it's something that I hope to see for women's sports in, the, in my lifetime, for sure, but definitely in the next decade. You know, Katie Kroll, you talk about uh, how well you've been treated by the players and by the Red Sox. I can't think of the woman's first name. Her last name is Prince, that brilliant uh, college basketball player from Oregon who made that incredible video of the facilities available for the women's NCAA basketball teams as opposed to the men's. And all of a sudden, there was a revolution. What are the facilities? I mean, you are one. I mean, you and Bianca, Sedona Price, thank you very much, one of my colleagues. Prince, <laughs> sorry, uh, just told me. Uh, uh, while you and Bianca both work for the Red Sox, you don't work together. What are the facilities like for you? Are there even uniforms that are women-friendly as opposed to having to squeeze into a men's uh, a uniform? What's the deal with that? Yes. So in spring training, the Red Sox built out a locker room for us. And so we have basically, oh, honestly, more space than a lot of the male coaches, oh. which they were giving us a hard time about because we have our own bathroom and shower and everything's great. In Portland, the um, GM, the minute that he knew that I had been hired, he went to building a locker room. So not only does it have a leather couch and lockers and a bathroom and a TV, you know, there are fresh flowers in it every week. Oh, too. Oh, I love it. I love <laughs> it. Amenities. Yeah. I'm very spoiled. And 
I think that, you know, space and like the physical representation, that to me is a very important signal of the way that I'm treated and the way that I'm valued. You know, they didn't just convert an old closet. They really went out of their way to make me feel like I was part of a coach. And then my office and my desk, so my computer monitor, my printer, where I work every day is in, you know, the other coach's office in the sense of like, I'm not missing out on meetings, I'm not missing out on conversation after the games. You know, if the male coaches are changing, I obviously, you know, disappear for a few minutes. Mm-hmm. But in terms of being able to have that rapport, that I think has been facilitated by the dual spaces as well. Now, Katie Carl, how'd you grow up and how are your young experiences in sports that got you to where you were your schools, I would imagine must have been pretty good in sports? Yes, I honestly owe everything to my parents. And I have a twin sister, Annie, and we would both cite them as being incredibly supportive and really formative in our experiences. So we were never told whether it was in golf tournaments or me wanting to work in baseball or her wanting to go to medical school. You know, it was never you can't do this. It was we believe in you and we know you have the talent. So get there. And I think our loves like blossomed organically in that we always had like intrinsic motivation for everything we did. Like if we ever lost, we weren't berated. It was just like this very wonderful environment. And, you know, I owe them so much for that. And like throwing out the first pitch to my mom on mother's day, or oh, oh, God. which is awesome. Oh, you know? that's <laughs> great. Like being inducted. Um, my helmet is now a part of Cooperstown, the hall of fame, wow. like all of that. Like I, every time I like take the field or like, walk on the line like I think of them so it's yeah they they absolutely I wouldn't be where I am without them so those early childhood experiences were foundational for everything how's your your golf game these days (laughs) it's pretty good I don't play as often as I'd like to but in spring training I got out on the course a bit was able to beat some of the other coaches oh good for you big smile on her face by the way you should know when she said that so what's the goal uh, Katie Kroll what's the goal I would Kim Ang hired me um, at MLB she was hired by the Marlins is the first female right. general manager in MLB. I would love to follow in Kim's footsteps. I think that there is also a part of me that would love to go back to New York and be at headquarters and be a custodian of the game and think about those macro level initiatives of how can we have a high quality of play? How can we really keep people engaged in this like ever changing media landscape? Um, so would also be interested in staying on the field. I think there are like three viable paths that I see myself on and, you know, I'm excited to walk them. You know, before we let you go, we should have talked briefly about the Sea Dogs. What's the, is the season still happening? I mean, minor league baseball is about as oh, good great. as it gets. We've talked about yeah. in the past. What's with the Sea Dogs? They have a great, great insignia too, or whatever you call it. The little <laughs> image of the Sea Dog eating the bat or whatever that damn thing is. Definitely. So yeah. what's the We're season? We're playing super well. It's a split season. So we didn't win the first half. The Yankees affiliate did. But now we're like neck and neck with the Rockies double A affiliate. And so if we would win this second half, we would go to the playoffs, which is really cool and exciting. And it's been awesome. We've had, you know, a lot of our top prospects move up like Brian Bayo or Frank Herman. But for whatever reason, like Brian really Bayo was at Portland. He started the year at Portland. Jim, get this, because I'm sure as you guys know, you know, it's quite cold in Maine yes. in April. <laughs> so Bayo would sit on days he wasn't pitching at the end of the dugout in three or four jackets and hats. <laughs> and he would eat, just eat, um, you know, those little hot chocolate packets you can get at oh, hotels sure. and yes. add water to them. He would eat the powder out of the packets at the end it's of the dugout. Story. It was the craziest thing. He's a great guy. And I'm so excited for him to not be with the big league staff. But yeah, we've had, you know, some big names come through and it's so cool to work with them and think, oh, wow, you know, maybe I helped him tinker with his slider grip and now it's a more viable <laughs> pitch for him, you know? Katie, we hope we can stay in touch with you. It's great what you're doing and we wish you a lot of luck. Yeah. Be well. 
Congrats. I hope your Thank mom you. and dad could somehow hear that. That would be that would make me teary I if I were your they mom have and dad. Heard it Katie, thank Good. you so much. Good to meet you, Katie. I be well. Talk it. to you okay. soon. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. We've been speaking with Katie Crawl, player development coach for the Red Sox uh, with their affiliate team, the Portland Sea Dogs. It's pretty exciting. Pretty very exciting. How about throwing the pitch to her mother? I, I mean, know oh on Mother's God. Day. Okay, coming up, the Reverends Iron Rowan Emmett Price take on the moral dilemmas of the day for another edition of All Revved Up. Irene and Emmett are next. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Back to Boston Public Radio, Marjorie and Jim Brady. Uh, we're at the uh, where are we? We're at the Boston Public Library tomorrow uh, live. We hope you join us. But we're first joined now by Reverend Irene Monroe and Emma Price for another edition of All Revved Up. Reverend Monroe is a uh, syndicated religion columnist, Boston voice for Detour's African American Heritage Trail. Reverend Price is the founding pastor of the Community of Love Christian Fellowship that's in Olson, the inaugural dean of Africana Studies at Berkeley College of Music, and together they host the fabulous All Revved Up podcast. Welcome to you both. Hey, Happy Monday, yeah. Pleasure. Well, well, I love stories about nuns that buck up against the system <laughs> and risk life and limb by doing it. So let's hear about these Kansas nuns who are going against their archbishop out there over abortion. You, you know, Marjorie, I, I am inspired by uh, this this action. So uh, two, two nuns out there in Kansas who are going against the archbishop who was actually in favor of uh, expanded, um, you know, anti-abortion amendment, um, which the um, folks there would deem as being kind of religious um, oppression uh, upon the people. And these two nuns are saying, you know, hey, we're religious folks. Uh, enough is enough. Uh, the state constitution <laughs> is where it needs to be. And they're actually writing letters and, and publishing these letters against the archbishop, which is actually phenomenal in, in a moment that I think many of us have been waiting to see. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's so wonderful because, you know, it, 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 it really goes against everything that conservative Catholics are absolutely upholding here. But they made a wonderful theological statement, which was this. They said that Jesus trusts women and we do, too. I had to just applaud that. And, yeah. and, and, and what they understand is they're very much concerned about these life saving procedures like ectopic pregnancies or incomplete, you know, miscarriages, let alone something like a 10 year old being raped and having to flee to Indiana to, you know, to get an abortion. I think it's wonderful. But they also understand this, which I wish the Catholic Church would understand. The conservative Catholic Church would understand this, that not all religious people, that's that's not just Emmett or myself, but but of even of the Jewish faith, don't believe that, you know, conception that, that life begins at conception. I'm always reminded by Bernie Frank, our our house rep, has this wonderful statement that conception, you know, be, uh, life begins at conception and death begins at birth here. So, you know, they'll, and he's a Catholic himself. So I just, no, no, no. Barney Frank is uh, Jewish. I, oh, he's Jewish. Uh, he's okay. Jewish, yes. 
Okay. Well, he's upholding his Jewish faith. He is. Um, Absolutely. And I just like that, that, you know, that um, what happens is it doesn't allow people who live in Kansas, particularly of a different faith and different and their faith shapes their views around this issue, give voice or live out that faith tradition. You know, there are a couple of things, Emmett, you mentioned about the religious discrimination thing, particularly a couple of Jewish leaders are saying you're basically determining you, the archbishop, are determining uh, how we should practice our religion because yeah, we don't agree with you. Imposing your religion. I was trying to say that, people, but I didn't. You're exactly right. Which is it's, what the Supreme Court is doing. Exactly. That is, I think, is exactly. But you know what's most amazing? And I have to say, the hopeful in this story, and this is directed at all three of you, we searched this morning to see the follow-up to this. What was the consequence for the two nuns? What did the archbishop do to crack down on them? It appears the answer is nothing. So uh, I don't know what that means, because he doesn't seem like a totally tolerant kind of guy. Maybe they're incredibly strong women or have public support, but it really... (laughs) Regardless, well, it is really they're, a great they're, story. They're also pointing out that what has the legislature done to help women, that poor women have babies? There was a story. No health care, no prenatal care, no Medicaid. That was, Plus, the Catholic Church didn't believe life believed at conception until the 1860s either. They believed right. it began at that's quickening, right. which is that's where a right. lot of religions are, which is when you can feel the baby move. So they've changed their tune as women became mm-hmm. stronger in their uh, asking for the vote, et cetera, et cetera. Can I say one last thing before we leave this topic what? based on what you said those two nuns said about the horrible care for women who choose to have a baby? There was a story, I assume most of you saw in the New York Times the other day, about how the states with the strictest abortion, yes. anti-abortion mm-hmm. uh, laws are the states with the fewest services for women who choose to and have a child. I mean, poorest, talk about hypocrisy. The poorest children, which which yeah. underlines that it's really not about but, babies. But they hear the cries of these women. They they, they know that these yeah. women suffer. And they also know that some of these women will resort to back alley abortions here. And also what they make, they say in the story, which I thought was really interesting, by a much more stricter abortion law puts women in more jeopardy than the already restrictions they have in place. I, and I said, oh, my goodness, you know, so they really kind of understand the, in a very nuanced way what, you know, having the, the kind of abortion restrictions will do to the public health of women and, yeah. and girls. We're talking Irene Monroe and Emmett Price. So, Emmett, uh, we'll start with you since uh, the Pope is not always uh, your colleague here, his favorite person. Uh, he, uh, that's called a euphemism for our young listeners. Uh, uh, the Pope goes to Canada uh, to apologize for this grotesque behavior around indigenous kids through a very long period of time. And I have to say it's long distance on my part, and it surely is late because he missed such opportunities when they were offered to him in the past. But it appeared to be heartfelt, or is that this naive on my part, Emmett? I I think it's naive on all of our parts. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that I'm realizing, and I forgot about this, but in 2009, Pope Benedict uh, XVI actually went and apologized, too. So I'm not sure how many apologies from, from different popes we need. Um, I think what we need is the reparation piece. And, and I there's, think nothing on, there's nothing on that right. front, correct? There's no movement. Right. There's no movement. Right. 
Right, right. And I don't think it's ignorance. I think well, it's, it's willful d- uh, denial here uh, on their part. And I think that they feel like they'll be absolved the more that they go and apologize about this issue while maintaining the status quo. So, I mean, th- there's nothing more to do, actually, which is what I'm hoping he will do in the future. I should say there is more, which is retire. And I'm hoping that what they will do, too, is put in term limits. You know, I do think at a point that you need term limits because you need new voices, even even if they repeat or reinscribe some of the same stuff we don't want to see moving forward. I still think we need new voices. Speaking of new um, voices, is he not? I don't know what the word is. What's the word of the thing where he's pulling together the Cardinals, the ad Cardinals oh, uh, in, in his uh, image so that theoretically they pick somebody. Con, conflave I don't know what or it something. is. I forget what the word is. But he's trying to stack the deck. <laughs> I don't even mean that in a pejorative way. Isn't that what he's doing with this? Well, well, he, he's stack yeah, the deck. Yeah, I mean, he is stacking the deck, but I certainly would love to get these two Kansas nuns in the deck here. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to get them in the deck. But better that Francis stacks the deck than Benedict stacking the deck, because I think we we ended up a little bit better with Francis than with Benedict. But one thing I I don't think so, Marjorie. Can I just push back on that? Because you've got to understand, he's still a church man. He's not as hard-fisted as Benedict is, but he's still doing the same kind of spiritual abuse here. So it, nothing changes. What, what, Emmy yeah. has a good idea in terms of what we, we do need some new folks. And I don't know if, if, if we're going to ever get that. Well, I disagree. I think there's a big difference between Benedict and Francis. But I want to mention the one thing I did like uh, um, about his his trip. Um, when he is in bad shape, he's older, He's he can't walk very well anymore. I guess he's got sciatica and torn knees and he had some big surgery. We never, we never see. I mean, pe- people are criticizing Biden coast to coast because they say too old to be the president. <clears throat> Maybe he is too old to be the president. But this guy and the previous guy before Benedict, John Paul II, who had terrible Parkinson's disease, we almost never see leaders in their frailty, their physical frailty. We don't see old people. Um, powerful old people, frail. And I do like the fact that he was willing to be shown unable to stand up, struggling to get in and out of his wheelchair, because we don't see that. Well, he's talking a lot about old age, by the way. Yeah, and- yeah he, he, he really yeah. is talking a lot about it. And I honor that. I mean, you know, I, I, I've i been accused of being ageist uh, here by Me my too. dear. Me too. Me too. That's right. Because <laughs> we so, are. That's right. <laughs> but I would, I would love to see a different model here. Um, because this is the reoccurring model of watching, um, you know, a, a man, um, you know, move into the aged season of life, you know, at all of the levels of, of, of kind of hierarchy. And I'd like to see a different model. I don't know what that model is, but I'd love to see a different model here. Well, I think they can implement one if they had term limits here. I think it's one thing to see someone frail. I don't have any problem with that. But I do think that it becomes a kind of I think you, you take away th- their dignity when they become too frail and, and they don't make an, ex- an exit, you know, before they get to that point of not being able to stand up or actually take care of themselves in a dignified way here. I think that what he's trying to do on a public stage is, is exit out. And I think we're, we're, we're beginning to see that. My hope is that in his exiting um, that he won't replace someone equally as old. But we have this problem. He, well, how America. old was he? Was he like in his mid-70s? When 70s, he, that's right. He's 85 yeah, now. Yeah. And I just think that one of the things that we do, we don't, we don't do very well as an aging population. 
become and we become obstructionists, not only in terms of policy, but allowing a younger generation to breathe new air in or, or breath into something that sadly needs, a, you know, a facelift here. We here are bad because when we look at Biden and I, and I appreciate him, I think he's the man of the moment when he was running against you know, Trump at the time. But I don't think so moving forward. I think I think that way about the Supreme Court. Thomas is going going to be 30 years in October. I think that, you know, as much as we like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she should have left sooner than having the way she did leave the Supreme Court. So we have a problem about when to leave. Let's move on to. um, It's not just uh, the papacy, by the way. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. yeah. Well, agree. on the other hand, we got four young justices in the Supreme Court, and that's going to mean we're going to be screwed for decades. So. <laughs> that's another good point. <laughs> on the other hand, <laughs> so so uh, uh, let's talk. I mean, I think if you was a church girl, Irene, uh, let's that's talk right. about about um, Beyonce's um, new album. Why don't you play yeah. a little sound? Actually, oh, we'll before, sound. before we even talk okay, about it, get us in the mood. As you were saying, Marjorie, I'm sorry. Okay, that's that's Beyonce. Uh, what do you think of the new uh, her new work? Well, I mean, I you want to start it. since you're a church girl? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I downloaded it. I absolutely, I love it. And this is one of my favorite ones because it's a shout out to child, ch- to church girls like ourselves that you can get your groove on and still like you can party on Saturday, okay, and church on Sunday, and there there and there's church no sin Sunday. in between. In between here, but she also is blurring or maybe collapsing the lines between the sacred and profane. So if you grow up in a black conservative church, it was this whole idea whether you can tell if a person was dancing in church or if they had the Holy Ghost. If you were jumping up and down, they said you were slain in the spirit. But if you were swaying left and right, they say, oh, you just dancing here. So the point is, is that you can dance. You can you can dance as well as jump up and down and and still be considered a good Christian here. But she's also doing something else here that we don't do in the black church is that in that song, she is embracing an embodied theology that we often don't have uh, in the black church because she used a lot of gay music. It's a shout out to the gay community, because and truth is, we wouldn't have gospel were it not for the, you know, the key of queer. So I mean, and so she's very good in bring that to the fold here. But she's also, in many ways, freeing up this notion that has been historic when we look at Aretha Franklin and other church girls who have had to wrestle with the audience. That yes, I drink, I fornicate, and I still love the Lord. So, uh, uh, in the spirit of fornication, no, it's hard to get off. You know, Emmett, since you're the music guy in this uh, uh, foursome here. There's some, there's a church girl history that I was unaware about. Is there not that led to this? There's a Genesis thing. That what is the backstory? Oh yeah, I mean you know the backstory is brilliantly written by um, by public theologian Candace Marie Benbow, who who um, who is just one of our leading uh, public theologians in this season. I mean it goes back to the Church of God in Christ. Um, Maddie Moss Clark, who was a director of music for the denomination, had her daughters. Um, who we know as the Clark sisters. And the Clark Mm -hmm. sisters were always trying to go back and forth in terms of developing a new sound out of Detroit, Mm -hmm. um, you know, of course, in the shadow of Motown. And their mother was very, very, very strict. 
And she didn't want any of that pop sound. She didn't want any of that pop kind of, you know, movement. So they always had these, you know, long dresses, <laughs> you know, kind of choir robe type yeah. things. Um, but but their voices, they, the timbre of their voices uh, enabled them to do some stuff that most others couldn't do. Yeah. And so and this this yeah. contribution comes really through the Clark sisters yeah. uh, in Detroit. And their she mother didn't up. have the same motto as Irene, which was fornicate on Saturday and church <laughs> on Sunday. No, no, was no, that no, what it was? No, no. I want to make sure I got that right. But the, Braxton, but the Braxton sisters even similarly here. So the, one of the things that it's always been a wrestle, a rust, I mean, a, a kind of fight. We, we wrestle we wrestle with uh-huh. this in the black church is that the reason why we get gospel jazz or gospel hip hop or anything that is contemporary at the time, it's always that fight of in bringing in the contemporary beats of the street. um, It's always the devil music. But the whole point is at some point they realize that they will lose a younger generation. And for the church to be vibrant, they have to let those sounds in to, to keep the church alive and also to keep the gospel alive about the whole notion of inclusivity. You know, I just got a news alert in my phone about CNN. Apparently, Beyonce says she's got going to remove an ableist slur from the album. Um, she, she didn't realize it was a slur, spasm, which some people yeah, are upset about yeah. that comes from the word yeah. spastic. So she's um, removing that. I guess there was some pl- complaint from the ableist community, but it seemed to be like an unintentional kind of thing. But let's not leave without saying that she does a shout out to our our native girl here, Donna Summers. Mm-hmm. Does she? Yes, she does. Mm-hmm. A nice, a nice. It's a nice little interlude with with Donna Summers. I like the whole piece here because it opens up, particularly Church Girl. It opens up with with that churchy sound, yeah. you know, uh, that churchy sound, and then it goes right into rock. And the point about it is, is it, it's like when I listen to disco music, I hear the you. If you listen to black music, you will hear the beats of the church, the rhythm of the church infused in that music. Yeah, well, you know, I think the black church has got the corner on the great music. So that's why I don't have any problem fornicating any day. (laughs) So so glad you shared that with us. We really, we really, really. I hear it in all all black music. Yeah. Hey, Uh, before you wait, just one second before you go, Emmett, what's your take on the CD? Well, I don't know what you call them these days. CDs, albums. What's your take on the whole deal? Most I'm a huge, most I'm artists a huge who we have on the show say they're albums. They albums, still call them okay. albums. But go ahead. Yeah. Go. Yeah. What are we going to say? Now, I'm a huge Beyonce fan. I'm a huge, huge, huge Beyonce fan. I think she's forward-thinking, entrepreneurial, innovative. And this sound that she has in this project is absolutely brilliant. Yeah. yeah. And she did a big yeah. service for the women of America and that lemonade thing. You know, talking she hits about, it out of Fenway again. Yeah. Yeah. She, she's um, she's really something. Okay, you guys, we're going to play a little. Of, play Good to see you both. We are going to play it out. Way out. <laughs> yeah. Great Be to well, see you. Too. The Reverend Iron Rose is syndicated religion columnist, the Boston voice of Detour's African-American Heritage Trail, Emmett G. Price III, is founding pastor of Community of Love Christian Fellowship in Austin and the inaugural Dean of Africana Studies at Berkeley College of Music. Together they host the All Revved Up podcast. A new edition has just dropped. If you want to check out the All Revved Up podcast, I think you really like it. Coming up, poet Richard Blanco joins us to put some poetic perspective on our current political climate. Village Voice is next on Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Mardrigan. We are live tomorrow at the Boston Public Library. We're joined now, though, by inaugural poet Richard Blanco to lead us through another edition of Village Voice, where we discuss poetry and how it can help us better understand our miserable lives. Richard Blanco <laughs> is the fifth presidential inaugural poet in U.S. history, the first poet laureate of Miami-Dade County, and author of How to Love a Country. Richard, great to see you. Good to be here, and yes, it's. Uh, I'm afraid I don't have much good uplifting poetry today. Okay. The theme of the show is not, a, but maybe it will. Maybe it will. Well, Richard, we're going to end. We're going to end on an upbeat note. We have to tell our listeners because we've taken a lot of grief about being too depressing lately. So we're going to be depressing for a while, and then we're going to end on an upbeat note. So I just want to know because you talked about this was a very difficult uh, few days. Anything in particular puts you over the edge, or just the whole state? Of the well, of the nation and the world, everything. But it's interesting. I went to I had some friends from Miami, and we went to visit Stephen King's uh, house, which is a oh. former house in Bangalore. Uh, and um, my friend was just commenting on uh, that uh, King is a is a staunch Democrat, and he had some skating, some really uh, powerful op ed piece that he did one time. And someone was just there was a couple people visiting. This person just comes out of the blue and says. Only rich people can afford to be Democrats. Really? Well, yeah. what exactly did that mean? Oh, because the Democrats <laughs> theoretically are going to tax the middle yeah. class into submission. Is that the phony <laughs> right. notion? Just, but it was, it was with such like, someone coming out of their face like that I had never really experienced that. Uh, and it just felt so visceral and real. Like, here's a person who's actually believing all this junk about like what does that even mean so my friend who is a uh, a high school uh teacher is really uh you know fast uh quick-witted and fast (laughs) fast on her feet or whatnot and she said um oh if you think republicans are going to take care of poor people oh she said something like i didn't know i came to the comedy show (laughs) i thought i came to see (laughs) to see stephen king's house and we ended it at that but anyway it just got me thinking yeah there has been a lot of like i think like many of us you know, so many things are coming to a head and like we're like we were on our way to uh, visit Montreal and I'm thinking maybe we should just stay here <laughs> or armed gunmen coming to my uh, home in Maine and like getting getting the two gay guys up here in the hills. I have no idea. You know, it's uh, not that yeah. easy to become a, a, a citizen in Canada for those of us who in le- recent years oh, have, have done a little research. Into it, Jim? No, but in all seriousness, it's not like you just say, I want to do it and you fill out a form and yeah. all of a sudden you're a Canadian citizen. So Yeah, uh, we've researched it and yeah. also there's a backlog of people applying yeah. already. But also it, 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 a backlog just, of people. <laughs> I've heard, I've heard there's a big, like the applications have been, but also it has to do with I think uh, just I have, you know, inherited trauma from my own parents leaving Cuba and fleeing Cuba and being there 10 years, full 10 years after the revolution and trying to give it a chance and thinking about their lives. And I just thinking, like, imagine, like, if I I actually did have to leave for for fear of my life. I mean, I I just my mind got all the way. So listen, I went there. So (laughs) if that's the case, before you leave, let's do some poems. okay? Okay. (laughs) so I'm so thrilled whenever you list poems and I've actually heard or read one. I'm thrilled, and I assume most of our listeners have heard The Great Fire and Ice by Robert Frost. So let's start with that if we can. Yeah, let's start with that one. A little rhyme to lighten up the mood, too. (laughs) Some say the world will end in fire. Some say in ice. From what I've tasted of desire, I hold with those who favor fire. But if if it had to perish twice, (laughs) I think I know enough of hate to say that for destruction, ice is also great. 
and would suffice. <laughs> I, I love that poem. So, so was Robert Frost in a bad mood that week, or was there something <laughs> that predicated that? What do we know about the the background of that poem? A couple things. Um, some say it was written also in response to uh, the end of uh, World War II in, in 1918, but there's two anecdotes. One is that um, it was inspired by Dante's Inferno, um, and the other one was that he was talking to an astronomer by the name of Harlow Shapley, um, and they were talking about, you know, the end of the world. And he said, well, it's basically two things. Either we'll be engulfed by the sun or we'll just float in a ball of ice into the edges of the universe. Oh, <laughs> and, of course, poets <laughs> picked that up. But, of course, I remember reading this as a, a you know, in middle school or, or maybe high school and just and just just really, uh, you know, it's just a, such a compact and really interesting way of thinking more than just the end of the, the end of the earth or the end of the Roman empire, but, but just thinking about uh, how we destroy ourselves also through hatred and greed um, the, the, you know, that both like, like desire, greed, power, war, and then the contrast to that, which is, yeah, I mean, the poem is fairly face value, but I think it applies more than just like, <laughs> just, just uh, what we're going through right now. But I always come back to this poem um, for many different reasons. But anyway, I just thought we'd begin with an oldie, but a goldie. As we well, say. you know, since that was so upbeat, do you have anything on a woman who turned to a pillar of salt in your repertoire? Do you have, <laughs> yes. do you have something yes, like I, that available or no? Yes, I do. <laughs> this poem so, is great. Lot's wife, Anna Akmat. Akmatova, is that how you pronounce yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. It it looks a lot harder than it is to pronounce. Okay. But um well we can talk uh, about her a little bit later, but um yeah, let's read the poem first. Great. Lot's wife. Um and the just man trailed God's shining agent over a black mountain in his giant track, while a restless voice kept hiring this woman, his woman. It's not too late. You can still look back at the red towers of your native Sodom, the square where you once sang, the spinning shed at the empty windows set in the tall house where sons and daughters blessed your marriage bed. A single glance, a sudden dart of pain, stitching her eyes before she made a sound. Her body flaked into transparent salt and her swift legs rooted to the ground. Who will grieve for this woman? Does she not seem too insignificant for our concern? Yet in my heart, I will never deny her who suffered death because she chose to turn. You know, I, I, I totally love this poem. And it's sort of like no one ever gave a damn about her view of her demise. And yeah. Anna Akhmatova finally well, it's not just that. talks it's just about that Lot's wife. Lot's wife doesn't get a name in Genesis. Yeah. I guess she doesn't deserve to have a name. She just goes doesn't get anything, wife. does she, except and her then, conversion to salt. We also think, you know, you you won the Hebrew award there and you're uh, the prayer book award, class, I wore, yeah. So you should be an expert on Genesis, Jim. Of course I, I mean, am. It, it, it always <laughs> did seem that it was a little high price to pay for turning around to seeing Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed. I thought that was a little... But wasn't that... Yeah, by the way, I'm not even sure this is true, so don't embarrass me if I'm wrong. The <laughs> deal was that the two of them were allowed not to get destroyed with Sodom's destruction. But right. the one condition was that... They not they, turn around. Okay. And why was... I don't remember. Why was that? Why were they not supposed to look at it? I think it was supposed to be that they were supposed to leave the uh, the, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah behind, behind in okay. exchange for okay. salvation. Wasn't that the idea? Right. 
Yeah, and yeah. That, so it's sort of a test of God, as, as the as, as yeah. God does in Genesis many times. <laughs> but yeah, there's a great uh, a sort of a feminist reading of this too, right? Because there's this idea, I'm not, you know, I'm choosing my own destiny, even if that's death. I'm going to look back at my city, right? That that turn mm-hmm. is a great, um, a great, a great sort of comment on that uh, in this poem that it wasn't, you know, the interpretation is usually like, oh, she, you know. Uh, you know, disobeyed God's orders and therefore it's punished. And it's like more like, well, no, I'm choosing this, right? I'm not mm. going to, I'm just not going to follow lot. You know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a woman with a name and a history and a city and all oh, with it. Like, but it, it's really parallels a lot of Anna's life because uh, she, uh, she uh, was born in, uh, she's Ukrainian, but lived all through the Bolshevik and wrote all oh, through really? the Bolshevik revolution. And, she, and, the, and the Russian people really love her because she never defected. She never abandoned the company. Her books were banned and everything from 1925 to 1940. She had a really hard time, was thrown out of the writer's union. Um, her son was imprisoned. Um, she was forced to write poems glorifying St- Stalin oh, or, or chose to, to try to get him out. Um, and so there's So it's that basically reading. her own story is what you're saying in a, in a way right she identifies with this figure oh, that's pretty um, great thinking about like no i'm not gonna leave you know even if i turn into a pillar of salt this is my country and um this is or rather that's what i'm thinking right now <laughs> this is this is my city right um and so there's a parallel between her life and and i kind of uh, recently uh, ending on good news um <laughs> i've sort of i've been sitting with myself on the porch <laughs> with these poems and thinking um, you know what? I'm not going to move to Canada. I'm not going to move to Mexico. I'm not going to. I'm not going to go try to repatriate myself to Spain where I was born. I'm going to stick it out. I'm going to see. This is my house. This is my country. You know, and uh, I mean, unless unless you fear for my life or something like that. I'm gonna. I've just been thinking. You know that sometimes the pen is not enough, and I'm thinking about becoming more activist when you know joining organizations becoming more politically active um you know the pen is mightier than the sword but uh, sometimes i think you kind of need a a figurative sword as well to go along with the pen and that's where i've been landing these days it's just like uh, you know well you know we're also we're spending much of today on the show richard talking about somebody like you who are brilliant at poetry there was a guy who died over the weekend who was the greatest team sport athlete in American mm-hmm. history who died, who decided that that wasn't enough. And his activism was as legendary as his skills on a, the uh, uh, basketball court at uh, at the garden here. Bill Russell, obviously. Bill so Russell, yeah. A I lot just of read people. that this yeah, morning. It's really – it's you know, before we get to what we had as good news, which I know you <laughs> consider good news too, what was Stephen King's old house like? I mean is it weird or is it normal? It's it's actually quite a nice house and kind of like right right near the center of Bangor. But a uh, couple of cute things, not cute things, but interesting things. So he has this uh, iron grating, um, and there's like it's it's ironwork with bats and and whatnot. That's and then good. and then there's a little red balloon hanging from the from the gate from uh, the movie. I think it's it right, like the <laughs> the clown movie. And then there's some interesting sculpture. But the house the house is pretty nice. Um, and you know, there's people driving by, but yeah, uh, it's not freakish like you would think. By the way, getting <laughs> but, back to your original point, if and, you follow Stephen King on Twitter, he is some of the most terrific 
trashing uh, uh, of Trump, of virtually he, anybody. But I, 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 yeah. don't, I don't follow Stephen. I mean, I know his books, obviously, but does he still live there or is it is somebody else live there now? What's the no, it, it's um, it's uh, it's now a headquarters or something of a foundation. He doesn't live there. Oh, anymore, okay. He lives he lives in um, lives near me, actually, in Bethel and Kaiser Kieser Lake. Um, OK, he's got a yeah, he kind of like how, how could you say he um, kind of like slow down a little bit and um he's he's given a lot of money to the libraries and things at, at the university of maine i believe but he's Great. kind of um what do you say downsized so to speak. Downsize. Yeah. so yeah. so our good news is someone a poet you've talked to us a lot about and you're a big fan of and i believe you know her oh, yeah it's yeah. become the poet laureate of the united states yeah, Ada Limbona, she's uh, a good, good friend of mine, and it's, uh, I, I had been texting her, and um, it's just, I was so happy to hear about that. Um, yeah, she's an amazing, she's one of my, she's one of our favorite, right? I love her, <laughs> I mean, too. I am, I am, yeah, I, she just got a new book uh, out, uh, it's called The Hurting Kind, um, for those of you out there, I was almost, I was almost going to do the show today, sir, but well, maybe next time. We've, we've done a lot of Ada. But, um, yeah, so so amazing her work, um, as we've seen in the show. Um, uh, we've, we've bonded. Uh, there's a group of us that met at the uh, Dodge Poetry Festival, um, and something magical about everyone, everyone's careers took off after that energetic oh, wow. meeting. So we have Patricia Smith. Uh, I became... As Patricia you know, Smith a, used to be at the Boston Globe. That Patricia Smith? Yeah, she's yeah. So she's so talented. Yes. Really yeah. talented. Uh, her career took off. Um, I, of course, became president inaugural poet. Ala's work took off and, and now is like, obviously, the poet laureate. So, um, yeah, I think... It, what does the it poet is, it is, laureate do? Um, so the official uh, sort of job description is advisor to the Library of Congress on matters yeah. of poetry. That's literally like all they have to do, but it's an outdated description. So, and it's actually run through the legislative branch of government because it's through the Library of Congress, which is interesting. It's not part of the executive branch in education, but anyway, um, they could do as little or as much as they want. And we've seen like Joy Harjo, our, uh, you, you have one year appointment, you can extend it for another year if you do uh, some kind of project or choose to do some kind of project. And Joy Harjo did a third year because of the project. And there's only two people that have been done that. Done that. One is Robert Pinsky, right from uh, mm. Boston and uh, Joy Harjo. So it's really, uh, there's some poet laureates that basically say, okay, I'm going to do this, but I'm not doing anything. Thank you very much for the honor. Um, and they come kind of come and go. Uh, so I'm curious to see what uh, Ada will, Ada, as she likes to be, uh, her name to be pronounced, what Ada will come up with. But um, yeah, it's one of those, it's an honorary position, but you can also be as active as you want. Um, but yeah, it's, that, yeah, pretty much that's all, that's all it is. Okay. Um, it's a, it's a, there's no official duties, kind of like even being presidential inaugural poet. You take on what you want. Um, you're the poet laureate of the inauguration. But um, but, um, but lately, people have been doing more and more things, obviously. But 
Well, Richard, I hope that I hope that August is a better month for you than July, and <laughs> and for us too. What are you for talking all, about? For, for him, us, we need it. And many of our <laughs> listeners would be distressed to know there's a long waiting list to get into Canada because I think so many of them have been planning on on not going. But thank you for informing Good us about that. Good to see you, Richard that. Blanco. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Let's hope for a better week. Yes, yes exactly. Be well. Thank you very much. <laughs> Take it easy. We've been speaking with Richard Blanco. He's the fifth presidential inaugural poet in U.S. history, the first poet laureate of Miami-Dade County, and author of How to Love a Country. And thanks, as always, to Richard Blanco. Coming up, we're going to open the lines and talk with listeners about the chaos at the end of the legislative session in Massachusetts. This happens, correct me if I'm wrong, Jim, every year. Every other year. To, every other year. Okay, every other year, up to 3, 4, and 5 o'clock in the morning. It's like, you know, trying to get your exams done night before. And how do those exams go when you're up until 5 o'clock in the morning? Not well. That's our legislature in business, not finishing their business. And if they can take a five-month vacation, why can't we? That's exactly. the question. That's next. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie and we're at the library tomorrow. We started this conversation we're about to have with you with the Attorney General at uh, between 11 and noon. You know, on Beacon Hill this weekend, it all came down to a scramble at the end of the formal session with lawmakers extending their midnight July 31st deadline well into the early hours of this morning. Sports betting, some gun control uh, measures, a mental health bill, which is a really important one, are all in. But a massive economic package stalled. And a whole bunch of other things because they're going home. It happens like this every other year, an election year. The chaos at the end of a legislative session, arbitrarily imposed by lawmakers uh, who need to take not just August off for whatever it is they need to do, but five months off. They will not formally reconvene until January of 2023. They do hold what these are called informal sessions between now and then. But I'm pretty sure you need a unanimous vote to do anything in them. Uh, uh, and the message, at least to me and Marjorie, is a little concerning. They had time, for example, to hammer out a bill for sports betting, which will take money away from the average person uh, who uh, participates, but not to address the financial concerns of Massachusetts residents dealing with staggering inflation. These one-time $250 rebates, gone for now. Tax relief on a broader scale, gone for now. Economic development bill, gone for now. Free phone calls for prisoners, which apparently really helps to reduce the recidivism rate, not to mention the fact that it's humane, gone for now. So we want to hear from you. What do you make of this chaotic, arbitrary end of the legislative session on Beacon Hill? Or do you think they need a five-month recess <laughs> to do recharge their batteries or whatever crap they uh, do there? 877 301 I'm sorry to be a broken record. This is outrageous. As we said to the Attorney General, if all these things that mattered, again, people are suffering financially. There was great fanfare. They're going to do $250 for every person except poor people. That was ridiculous. But moderate income people uh, up to a certain income level, $250 to offset the price of gas, etc. It's so urgent that they're going home for five months. A $700 million a permanent tax relief plan, a decent percentage of which is geared to renters and uh, child needs and that sort of mm -hmm. thing, gone for now. 
Uh, uh, you forgot to mention they were the it? last legislature in the country in to session. come back to uh, the actual building up at Beacon Hill. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Of COVID. <laughs> By the way, do you think I'm overreacting to this July 31st thing and just being nice to you me know, or no? I, listen, I, I, it seems to me they could get by with two months vacation. <laughs> I don't really know if they need to have five months vacation. They claim as to, as our staff has pointed out, to focus on campaign trail. I also heard about constituent services, but they have a lot of uh, help up there on, on Beacon oh, wait, Hill. Wait, wait a second. Campaign trail. There are two there problems no, with that. There is no election. Nobody runs against anybody. Yeah. This is a lifetime job for 90% of these state reps and senators. And by the way, even if it turns out they they were, should is, is, as pathetic as Congress is, are they taking off the rest of the year? No, they're not. I mean, what is the deal? Is so the they have an election. Off the rest of the exactly. Year? Figure, state auditor taking off well, the, the rest of the governor, year? Well, the governor, oh, there is a gubernatorial election, even though he's not running. Right. So why does Maura Healy and, all the, and, and everybody else who's an elected official take off the rest well, of the year to run for office? You know what the beauty of being a state legislator is? What? You can vote in your own laws. <laughs> well, can I ramp, uh, uh, rant for one more second? Sure. Even if it was justified... To take off a few months for your election, which is unconscionable to me. Well, no one else does. When it. you're done being elected or unelected mm-hmm. on November, is it November 6th this year? I can't remember. I what happens the rest of November and December? You're recuperating from the trying campaign? <laughs> I mean, really? You know, by the way, I would not be doing this. I just want to be clear and then I'm going to mm-hmm. shut up. I'm going to try anyway. If they had accomplished everything that mattered that was on the table they'd addressed. My attitude would be, it's ridiculous they're taking a five-month vacation, but I don't think we'd waste your time with it. There are a lot of things that matter to a lot of people, Remember, regardless of what side of the political fence you're on, and they decided what's more important than all of them I is a five-month vacation. I think the answer up at the Statehouse is they like to have meetings in secret, and God knows what goes on in these secret meetings, because we can't see the meetings where they're debating a lot of things. I mean, sometimes you can see it, but most of the time you can't. You know what I used to love when I was a reporter? You go up to some legislative hearing, and it would be on some horrible thing, like you know, murder victim you know, reform or something. The the, the the murder victims were all sitting there in the audience while the legislators get up and gave their little speeches. And the murder victims would be sitting there or whatever it was, whatever constituent would be there for like an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, because the legislators all had to give their little speeches first. And then they left. And half of them didn't even hear what the victims had to say because it was so long I into the session. They had something to say. I always loved the fact they give themselves um, uh, uh, the – Mileage, you know what I mean. You get a lot of money per diem. We call them, yeah, for driving in from from Springfield. You really load up on that money coming in from Springfield. Okay, one last thing do, here. Do we do we know what happened to the per diems while we, they weren't driving in from Springfield? Do you know about the, do, you know, do we know about that? I haven't done research on it yet, but I will uh, tonight. <laughs> now, one last thing, and then I'm really sort of done for now. Yeah, is uh, I'm not going to debate the pros and cons of this expansion of dangerousness hearings that Charlie Baker wanted, which basically said it would be there'd be more categories of crimes. Crimes that would allow a judge to hold a a uh, charged person without bail uh, because of the dangerousness of this particular alleged crime. Civil libertarians don't like it. That's not even the issue, whether you're for it or against it. Uh, uh, one chamber voted for Baker's amendment. One voted against it. And why was it not resolved before uh, they went home? Because they had to go home. Because the Senate voted, I think it was at 2.45 a.m., and they left at 5. Mm-hmm. If they had, if they had what's the word, extended for a week, right. they might have been able to resolve these issues. You know, I just, mean, really? And just compare this to the, to the real world. God. I mean, if you had a big project that was due this is great. at You're the so- office, and 
you didn't get it done in time. See, in even January. Though, even though you had ample time to get it all yep. done, to say, well, yep. exactly. I, I, it's August now. You know, I got a beach house down the Cape or wherever mm-hmm. you're going. And in the fall, I'm going leaf peeping in Vermont, whatever you're going to do. I'm not going to come back for five months. You would be, you would be fired. I mean, that's what would happen to you. And there's no, we, we talk constantly. Remember at the beginning of the pandemic when there was all that money coming from the feds? Yeah. And Charlie Baker wanted to get rid of the money. Fast. Because he Not said. Not get rid of it. He wanted to spend it. Well, he or, wanted to spend it on, yeah. on needed yeah. areas yeah, around yeah, yeah, the Commonwealth. Yeah. He couldn't do that. Why couldn't he do that? Right. Because the legislature has to have a million meetings about what mm-hmm. to do with the money. Isn't some of the money still tied up? I think it is. All yeah. this time later after the pandemic? We always talk about why can't the legislature move? Why can't the legislature move? I think it's because people just don't pay attention and do not realize the, the uh, you know, uh, Rachel Rollins had this great thing. Well, what, actually, it was the ACLU. What a difference a DA makes mm-hmm. because people weren't aware of how important DAs in terms Or that are. they were even elected. They didn't know. Yeah, or charging people for yeah. crime or who gets charged for what yeah. and all that kind of stuff. I don't think people realize how much the legislature impacts their life and they're not paying attention. Okay, one last thing. If you could, we, are, we do take calls in order. Mm-hmm. But if you are a, a person who doesn't work in the legislature but has a five-month vacation starting August, <laughs> First, if you tell our colleague who's screening the calls, we will take you out of order. Kristen, I have no idea where you're from, but wherever you're from, we're thrilled to have you. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I'm not sure that I have enough time to explain this well enough, Yeah. <laughs> but um, I have adopted twins who have an invisible disability. Yeah that I am working in my job and in my life to get support and funding for. Mm-hmm. And it's called FASD, which is fetal alcohol yeah. spectrum disorder. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. And here, here's my thing. There used to be a big federal agency for it, which the government closed. We're trying to get any kind of legislation going that we can. It's two and a half times more prevalent than autism. And instead of the bill that we tried to get through... They get through a bill to have happy hours reinstalled in Boston, which is more drinking. And the pandemic caused like a huge increase in drinking, which is going to cause more FASD. And we can't get any traction on anything. And was this something, Um, Kristen, uh, because I'm not familiar with the state of any legislation relating to this, was this something pending before the legislature that they didn't address? Is that what you're calling? Yes. Yes. Well, they had to go on and, a five-month and, vacation. What can I tell you? No. Well, and I guess I know you have Art Kaplan. I would love to have some time for him to talk about or look into FASD. Can you do me, hey, Kristen, can you do us a favor? Can you send us an email? I'll do whatever you want. No, uh, send us an email and in the subject line say for Art Kaplan at BPR at WGBH.org. Okay. I promise you we'll read it and try to bring it up. Kristen, good luck. I'm sorry they didn't fix what needed Fixing. 877-301-897. What are you laughing about? Stephen Marlboro is a cynical guy. He says, let's face reality. Would we be much better off if they took... Oh, we would be much better off if they took the whole year off. (laughs) He doesn't have a lot of But they're not a part-time legislature. (laughs) They are a full-time legislature that's paid as a full-time legislature. Up in New Hampshire, don't they get like 20 bucks a year, 100 bucks a year, some crazy thing? Because they are a part-time legislature, which we have as well. But they get, uh, in New Hampshire, they just show up and... And uh, with next to no money, and in Massachusetts, we have money and we have staff and parking spaces and per diems. 
And, you know, I, I, I'm not a big fan of my former colleague at the Boston Herald. He and I didn't really get along that well, Howie Carr, yeah. who's still at the Boston Herald. But he did once write a great column called A Dream Denied. Right. And it was all I know about, what it was. <laughs> it was all about how there's a three-day week and in every month of the year. Except I believe, August? I believe it's August. Oh, I think August is the only and, one. I remember that column. different legislators trying to maneuver to get good, a holiday yeah. in August. They just couldn't get one. You know, they've got Bunker Hill Day where they're all, of course, celebrating Bunker Hill. Ha, ha, ha. Or they've got, you know, what's the one on St. Patrick's Day? Bunker Hill's in June. Oh, Evacuation, evacuation Day. Evacuation Day, yeah. You know, they're all, uh, they all celebrating the evacuation. I think that was the British leaving Boston. I don't think so. Uh, but that's uh, they have a holiday, three-day weekend. But August, tragically, was a... Dream denied. Well, they actually have better than a three-day weekend. They have a 150-day weekend starting today. <laughs> I mean, That's right. That's a good point. Why do they need a holiday in August when they have the whole month off? Excellent And the point, next Tim. month, and the next month, and the next month. <laughs> Tina and Hudson, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Hi, hi there. Thank you so much for taking my call. Can you hear me? We can. Yes. Uh, terrific. You, you guys do a great job. I've Thanks. been following... The legislature of the, this past uh, session down to the wire last night when they passed the climate bill. Uh, Jeffrey Roy did an awesome job and um, did a great speech on the floor. Senator Mike Barrett did a great speech on the floor. They passed the bill. But this system is so dysfunctional. Now it's got to go to the governor. He's got 10 days. Is it going to come back? And they waited six months. They could have done this three months ago and not left it to the last minute. So if this was a corporation, they'd all be fired. You know, Tina, I'm so glad you mentioned the 10 day thing, because I should have mentioned that one of the things the legislature gives up when it uh, does things, even if it does do them at the end, is it gives unilateral power to the governor to decide whether to veto something, sign it, send it back with amendments. And since he has 10 days to do such a thing, if they don't pass the legislation to his desk at least 10 days before the end of the session, July 31st, then whatever he does, they can't override. If they disagree with it, that's a conscious choice they've made. And I'm really glad you pointed that out, which gets me even more aggravated. Tina, thank you for the uh, for the call. Well, every year we list a whole bunch of things that the legislature could do immediately, but they don't. And mm. all these bills get filed and they just die. They just die. And you don't really get to see why they died or what happened because there's so much secrecy at the Statehouse. It's not just the Statehouse, by the way. It's the, leg- it's the governor's office has all these arcane rules about secrecy. The legislature does. Judges, you ever try to get a judge? We're the only state in America, according to great reporting by Todd Wallach when he was the Globe, mm-hmm. where all three uh, organs of uh, state government believe they're not subject to open re- uh, yeah. public meeting laws, they so, uh, open records laws. In, in terrible secrecy, and it's, and it's a real problem. Florida, if you you try to get information in Florida. We all think Ron DeSantis is, you know, running – well, not everybody. I suppose some people really love him, but think he's running amok down there in Florida. But you can find out what's going on in the state of Florida. Texas has also – those committee hearings are video uh, streamed. Mm-hmm. You know, one, I'm going to go back to the first thing I said because uh, it will make me feel better. Okay. So it, I know a lot of you wanted sports betting to happen, which is fine. I mean, that's perfectly fine. But that's really not the issue. By definition – Sports betting means more people lose money than make money. Do we all agree on that? Mm -hmm. Yes. So they had time to work out their differences on a measure that will cause more people to lose money than get money, but didn't have time to work out their differences on how they could 
give money, like this $250 rebate, to people who are suffering. To me, again, maybe in another day or two they could have done it, or a week, but they decided what well, was the priority. Gambling was a priority Here's over financial relief for moderate-income families. If you don't finish, why do you get to go home? If you don't finish, you stay until you finish. It seems to me that would make more sense. And by the way, did you mention apparently they've raised the salaries up in New Hampshire? They now get a salary. Our staff tells us oh, of two hundred fifty bucks. Oh, good for them. If they're uh, if they're uh, presiding officers in, in the legislature, uh, the rest of them get two hundred dollars. That's plus average, a year. That's a year. Yes, That's not okay. Forty five days of legislative days. I bet they get their work done in forty five days. Better than I have no idea if they do. Sally and Newbury, what's up? Hi, Hi. Uh, Jim and Marjorie. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, I, I've been working with the MSPCA uh, and a bunch of other people to get a circus uh, bill passed for about, well, the bill's been around for about 20 years, and uh, it just keeps getting shelved. It's to ban exotic animals from traveling shows. And uh, it's a very popular bill. It's got a lot of bipartisan support. But it just can't seem to get out of ways and means where we know bills go to die. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was talking to someone at the MSPCA recently who said only about four or five percent of bills that are filed ever get passed in any legislative session, which is really appalling. So um, I just I agree with everything you, you've been saying. Uh, and we've been calling and calling and writing letters. It doesn't seem to get us anywhere. So I don't know what we're supposed to do as as a citizen advocate. Um, I can tell you. Down. I can tell you exactly what to do, Sally. Call them in January. That's when they'll be back at work. <laughs> That's when. You, I mean, terrible. you are so. Uh, you know, it's, it's disgraceful. Again, you know. By the to way, do all that work as a citizen and not even to get a response. That is it, the point. Even maybe. You, what did you say, Sally? Twenty years. You've been doing this. Twenty years off and on. Yeah, twenty um, years off and on. That's a long time for things to keep dying and dying and dying in ways and means. But that's like the joke. The Sally, bills get, thank you very much. The bills Sorry. Get sent to committee where they die. Can I be clear about this? There are a lot of bills where you can believe that it shouldn't pass, and but that should be the natural outcome. The outcome should not be we ran out of time. Well, the outcome should be we sent X to the governor's desk because we liked it. Or we chose not to send X to the governor's desk because we voted it down because we don't think it's good public policy. What is unacceptable is to say we didn't do either of those things because the clock ran out and vacation time starts. I mean, and by the way, why are people I mean, a few people have called us seem to be upset. A few texters. Why is there not more anger about this? I don't maybe I'm misreading it, but this is horrible. It's inexcusable behavior. I mean, they were touting. They remember what a celebration there was when they decided to do the two hundred and fifty dollar rebate. By the way, even though they weren't giving it to poor people because they gave poor people their money in the spring, they don't need two hundred and fifty dollars now. They're rolling in dough. Regardless, though, how do you, how do they justify this? I I, I don't know. I okay, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think the legislature has been rather disgraceful in Massachusetts since I've been here, which is. All my life. They did, by the way, they did some good things here. The mental health thing is important. A lot of you love sports betting. The gun thing that Maura Healy described to us before sounds like it's the right thing to do. But the fact that they did some good things doesn't excuse the failure to address adequately 
other things that matter to a hell of a lot of now, people. Now, we should say, can't they have informal sessions? They can have informal yes, sessions. Yes, but I believe, unless I'm wrong, and if someone, if I am wrong, I will apologize tomorrow, I promise. I believe in an informal session, uh, which is all they can do between now and July, unless they're formally called back into no, session, January. which is very rare. January, I'm sorry. Is uh, if one uh, legislator objects to whatever they're trying to shove through, then it can't uh, move. So I believe that that's – and there's nothing, virtually nothing that passes unanimously. So that's sort of a false whatever. Uh, in any case, we are sadly – Oh, we're time. done. We are uh, done. We're okay, done. that's too bad. I think we're having a lot of influence on the legislature really too. I think revved up over I, I'm not getting revved. I am revved up. Yep. I'm really aggravated about this. It's, it's just wrong. It's another American And if they want tragedy. to take off August, like a lot of legislators – I'm fine with that. Then come back in September. Take off a week before the election so that if you have a re-election campaign, you can have an extra week without – I mean, really. And you know what this other BS is? What? They're back in the district consulting with their – I mean, really? Remember the pictures, those great pictures in the Globe about 25 years ago, all the legislators on the beach in Spain or Por- oh, Portugal yeah. is where yeah, they were. That's- <laughs> Portugal. <laughs> that's right. They were having, what were they having, Brandy Alexander's or so. something like that? And by the way, <laughs> you got to do the mandatory. There are a lot of wonderful legislators, but wonderful legislators should be standing up screaming to their leadership and saying this is unjustified. Okay, we are done for today. Thank Aye you very much yay. for tuning in to another edition of Boston Public Radio. Jim's about to blow a gasket over there. He's all worked up because he had a lot of run-ins up there in Beacon Hill. No, He's a notorious character up there in Beacon Maybe Hill. Maybe Keep up with this 24-7 by way of our podcast. Tomorrow we're going to be live at the Boston Public Library. It is free. You don't need any tickets. You just show up. I NBC Sports. Th- well, because people I know it's ask true. it on the emails. I know, I know they do. NBC Sports uh, Boston. Trenny Kuznerik will be with us. The ACLU's Carol Rose. The Boston Foundation's Lee Pelton. And the Boston Globe's hysterical. Christopher Muther, which is a great thing about Cape Cod, all the hot places to go down there. And GBH Executive Arts Editor Jared Bowen. We want to thank our crew, Zoe Matthews, Ed and Colin McKenzie, Farkas, Rebecca Tauber, Gina, Gia Orsino, and our engineer, John LaCroix Parker, plus Jane Bologna, our executive producer. What's on TV, Jim? Uh, tonight is the first debate between the public, oh, televised debate, three Democrats running for Attorney General. Tomorrow I'll be doing a debate, uh, first uh, Democrats running for Lieutenant Governor, next week Auditor and Secretary of State. Why am I not doing the other primary, which is the Republicans running? Running for governor because Chris Doty said yes. Jeff Deal said no. If you want to call Jeff Deal and tell him to say yes, we have plenty of space for them next week. Let me tell you, there's nobody that does a debate like Jim Brown. Okay, don't mock me. It's going to be, it's going to be great. You know, Everybody unfortunately, I can't be there tonight because I'm taking a five-month vacation <laughs> starting now. I'm Jim Browdy. I'm Marjorie Egan. Thanks for tuning in. See ya. Have a great day.